I hope. So, welcome everyone. This is your host MJ, and I'm joined by two special guests today. For returning, Josh. Hey, whatever. Yep, he's enthusiastic. <laughs> this is this is how desperate I've got for enthusiasm. I had to go to the mountains of Canada and dig out this old fossil called Matt. And what did you find? You found me. Exactly. You dragged me out of my hovel, out of the wilderness. You fought bears off of my rotting carcass, and here I am. And it's he's got to be here. as much enthusiasm as Josh. My I'm going to be the only happy guy. MJ's got nothing else better to do. This guy's a homeless bum. Pretty much, he's yeah. In Vanc- he's on the West Coast, and he, he found me somehow. <clears throat> and I thank him for it. Thank you, MJ, for uh, having me on here again. You're welcome. It's all good to have you back. And we're going to be discussing the filmography of Quentin Tarantino today. So. Whoa, 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 whoa. I reject your hypothesis. <laughs> I'm here to discuss Wild Speed Super Combo. Okay. What's that, Josh? I don't know about... I don't know. It's Wild Speed Super Combo starting, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Jason Statham. Now, why are we whoa, discussing... Whoa. I, oh, I got forward discussing Wild Speech with the combo. Well, I you reject your hypothesis. <laughs> I heard that Tarantino might have your gotten the down. rights for the next one. Well, I'm okay, shutting then. your butt down, MJ. We're, we're going to start with Matt here. Matt, give us a general <laughs> overview of what you think of Quentin Tarantino's film. Wild Speed. Tar- Tarantino's on Wild Speed. You're shutting <laughs> you your butt tr- down. Well, first of all, I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility that Tarantino's last film, his pre-60 or 10th film commitment statements that he made years ago, aren't we now living in a world that it's possible he could be doing the next Fast and Furious? I mean, last time I talked to you guys, like, let me just tell you the last things that happened since last time I talked to you. Trump's in the in office, you know? Europe doesn't include Britain anymore, technically, or soon to be. Thank God. I mean, I even had a kid. I think we've all been waiting to... We've been trying to get rid of Britain since I was born. Well, you're like me, buddy. We're one of the colonies. We owe owe them everything. You owe them their prisoners, and I owe them the fur traders. But uh, anyway, (laughs) Tarantino. Overall filmography, I think... I think I love Tarantino as a director. Uh, His overall filmography, I think, is consistently stronger than any other director's filmography, with the exception of a few. And those few could be, you know, we can talk about that maybe later, but maybe a Scorsese or a a Kubrick. Um, Every movie that he releases is supremely interesting and entertaining to watch. as far as what the bests of his filmography is concerned, we can we can quantify it later. But like movies like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, the early ones were so good that they changed the lexicon of cinema. And for many reasons, I mean, these were movies that just weren't being made the way they were before he came along. And after there was definitely a pre-Tarantino age. In a post-Tarantino age. And I think the post-Tarantino age, you can see bits of his influence um, in almost everything that's released now, uh, good or bad. Um, a lot of it bad, 
because Tarantino seems to be really one of the only guys that's able to do Tarantino uh, style well. So overall, I love him. I think he's great. Um, and looking forward to seeing Once Upon a Time because I don't know if the listeners know, but um, MJ is the only one that's seen it. Uh, it takes years or even months to ship it across the ocean to Australia, so Josh is waiting. And, uh, yeah, that's it. And uh, what about your thoughts, Josh? Uh, on Wild Speed or in, on Tarantino's filmography? See, <laughs> it's like I'm in a Tarantino film where we're mixing everyday dialogue with uh, what I'm trying to get to the point of. Uh, shutting your butt down. <laughs> Uh, Tarantino's filmography. Give me your thoughts on it. I think it's pretty good. <laughs> Thank solid. you. Thank that you. Is <laughs> uh, <laughs> look, it's so solid. Happy. It's uh, no, as uh, as Matt correctly said, that this guy kind of uh, changed the game. He's got a film in his filmography that really uh, is one of the very rare films that you could say is a game changer in the history of cinema, and that's Pulp Fiction. Um, his films are consistently on a certain level. They're very, uh, despite him ripping off several movies in every film that he does, they're hmm. somehow wholly unique and to his own. Uh, there is no one quite like Quentin Tarantino. Um, he's the person who uh, helped me learn how to become a screenwriter like I look listened to his advice and I took a similar approach to a lot of the tips and suggestions and ways that he does things and developed into my own style but so I'll always give him credit for that as a person uh, I think he has a lot of uh, things lacking um, mm. I think he's a bit of a an arrogant asshole if you really want to think about okay. if you really listen to a lot of his interviews but um as a filmmaker, I can't fault him too much. I mean, we'll get into some of his films mm. later. I think um, he never quite matured as a filmmaker, and I think that's mm. probably why he's never reached the heights of Pulp Fiction mm. since. Or, well, Jackie Brown, like, you saw, like, the beginnings of, like, a mature filmmaker coming out, but then, like, post that, he's just not interested. He's more interested in doing his uh, schlocky grindhouse-inspired stuff. So it um, would have been interesting to see if he had a different career path, but uh, he is who he is, and he'll always he'll go down as one of the, the most influential filmmakers of all time, for better or worse. Okay, mm. that's, that's interesting to hear. Like, uh, I like his films, and like I'm always there to go watch him. He's one of the few filmmakers where... You don't really have to see a trailer to be in for his films. You're expecting something of quality. You're going to show up. You're going to put your ass in the cinema seat. If you're not a fake fan, you'll show up to his films. <laughs> Otherwise, he's got a solid filmography. I don't really know much about his personal life. I don't really read his interviews. But I'm sure we'll be digging into that with some fun facts from Matt today. Yeah, so I, um, you know what, I'm basically just a human Wikipedia for this one, but I wanted to, because for me personally, the Tarantino movies aside, and that's going to be the majority of what we talk about, 
having just looked up and put pen to paper on some of the stuff he got up to, especially in the 90s and the early 2000s, some of the most interesting things is what he was doing in between movies and what he had his hand in, personally, like as a, as a writer or a screenplay or a producer, all that. And I, having put it in a list, it's just kind of staggering to see what he had an influence in in mid-90s to late-90s and early-2000s Hollywood. It's insane. And then a lot of the other stuff, like uh, Josh alluded to, which is interviews and fights, but... I was hoping, yeah, Josh and MJ in between the movies, I could come in and just fill in the blanks of what he was doing in between films, good or bad. So, Exactly. <laughs> I went to Canada and I've upped our production values. We're going to get a history at length with his filmography. So let's hit the ball rolling, guys. Let's start off with Reservoir Dogs. Hit the ball come- rolling. Yeah. Josh, <clears throat> you can start on this one. What are your thoughts on Reservoir Dogs? Um, apart from its uh, obvious ripping off of a certain film, it's quite uh, great and was obviously a highly influential film at the time. If not for Pulp Fiction, uh, it would be probably even more influential. But um, Reservoir Dogs is quite a great little crime heist film um obviously it's the start of his career we could see like the beginnings of what he would become with in terms of like the shots and the dialogue and mm. um the violence and everything but um it's a film i saw when i was probably way too young to see it but i was, <laughs> remember watching it i think i saw this after pulp fiction though but um it was on tv one night and it was gonna be on snuck out started watching it on tv um and loved it i think it's really great i haven't watched it in a long time but i remember the last time seeing it um it had a lot of uh rough edges to it Mm. which Mm. you don't see especially these days from tarantino where he's a lot more polished this is uh as grindhousey as you'll get in terms of like the aesthetic because he had obviously a very low budget but um yeah, I think it still holds up fairly well. Uh, I never understood why people were so squeamish about the violence in this, considering, like, <laughs> the most hardcore act of violence you don't even really see in the film. Mm. Um, again, maybe I'm fucked up, but, like, well, uh, you know I, what? I've never seen it as that bad, so... Honestly, I really love do, you the think, film. And I think... do you think that... Sorry, go ahead, Josh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go that, ahead. That, no, that ear just keep going but that ear cutting scene is that what you're referring to there with the that violence yeah because it's like i remember when i first saw it and then my memory of it was completely different the next time i'd see it like yeah because it's such an impactful sequence that your brain makes you think that you've seen something which is far worse but how he actually executed it he just turns the camera like and moves it away and you don't see anything apart from like the aftermath obviously but um it was quite impactful considering you don't actually see it, but the first time you experience it without knowing what's going to happen is, uh, it leaves an impression on you. Um, no. And just yeah. in terms of the performances, like Steve Buscemi and Harvey Keitel, I think are excellent. I think Michael Madsen's good fun. I think Tim Roth is good, but like in further rewatches, I 
always seem to have a problem with some Tim Roth performances that he goes so over the top. I agree. Especially I agree. in a Tarantino-inspired gonna... film. But I Tar- agree. Tarantino, oh, not, no, sorry, not a Tarantino-inspired film. A film that Tarantino directed one section of that I don't know if we're discussing today, but Four Rooms. Yeah, um, well, I have a little Tim bit of that later, too. Tim Roth is awful. Yeah. Tim Roth's awful yeah. in that film. Um, yeah, the film's quite good. The violence, again, seems worse than what it actually is, and I think that's just a credit to Tarantino that he was able to make it feel more powerful than what was actually being presented. Mm. But, um, yeah, I quite enjoy it. I think it's in his top five best films still to this mm. day. I don't know exactly where I'd rank it in that top five, but, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Started off the Tarantino film, which is pretty much a genre into itself. And how about you, Matt? And caused a lot of copycats. Yeah, I want to talk about that too, about the, what he's inspired. But, um... Yeah, maybe even just before Reservoir Dogs, you you guys alluded to the ego that he this guy may or may not have, deservedly or not these days after uh, <clears throat> in current times. But maybe we could just give a, a reality check. And from humble beginnings, I can tell you what his first Hollywood job was. He was a production assistant on Dolph Lundgren's exercise video in 1986 called Maximum Potential. That's how he started. And his first acting job was on Golden Girls. He was an Elvis impersonator. So, Quentin, if you're giving a, a rough interview uh, and trying to be with a god complex, just remember where you came from, buddy. And as far as Reservoir Dogs is concerned, I really enjoy this film. Um, I think that it sort of started the conventions that you saw throughout his later films right off the hop. Things that you can sort of point by point see evidence of in each of his films like for example um like subversive plot direction like things going wrong reality coming into effect in a in a in a plan like for example in this movie a heist isn't successful and mr white's betrayed and a cop is tortured and then saved and then killed um uh the dialogue driven narratives you know the arguments in the warehouse in this movie and when uh, Roth is getting trained to be an undercover cop with his script. Um, hyper-violent set pieces, that ear-cutting scene, of course. Um, and then even other stuff, uh, like chronologically shuffled storytelling and non-linear storytelling, you know. You get to see glimpses of the warehouse when they show up, but then there's flashbacks to the heist getaway and um, the team being assembled, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink, at the uh, being recruited. Uh, and then even, even sort of stuff that I really appreciated and I thought he never really faltered on through his entire career of like music being woven into the plot, you know, in that ear cutting scene that Steeler's wheel song is, is playing, but it's not just a soundtrack. It's a, it's a song on a radio. He turns up and we're even introduced to that through this fake, I think it's Stephen Wright, isn't it? Like the, the radio DJ radio broadcast is it like that, that, from the 70s like it's a station but it interjects scenes or chapters yeah. right you hear him narration but uh yeah weaving music into a plot and using it as a plot device um 
So all those things in that movie, right from the first movie he does, it sort of sets the template for almost all of his other movies with the, almost the exact same thing. And overall, I think the movie is pretty uh, incredible. Um, getting back to what Josh said about the staggeringness or the the audience is being taken aback by that that ear cutting scene and it's uh, being violent, but maybe not even because the camera turns away. I just wanted to ask you guys, had anything ever, like like a torture scene, ever been a set piece in a movie, a major movie release before that, though? Had audiences have ever had to sit through a torture scene where a guy's ear was cut off? Do you think maybe, if not, that was the reason that was sort of so notable? Off the top of my head, I can't really think of one. I'm not sure if Josh can't. Because I can't personally. I think maybe that might have been the reason why mm. people remember it so well, or, or especially at the time. Like people are actually sitting through a guy getting his ear cut off, yeah, and then realizing what you just sat through. Um, like, but also it was played awesome by Michael Madsen. That was such an <laughs> insane scene. Like that's such well, an insane scene. That brings me to like my points. Like because we knew about the show for like. A week I decided to try and try and rewatch all of his films and I only really accomplished four of them and mm. we're not going to even talk about the tenth one <laughs> which is Once Upon a Time and our boy Josh can't hear anything and he may have dropped out <laughs> that's all right I'm here for you uh, technical issues Speak away for a few moments, Matt. Give us some yeah. fun facts. Okay, well, um, so this movie, this movie was when Tarantino was just, I mean, he was literally working in a video store, and he shopped this script around Hollywood. Harvey Keitel got this script through an acting coach and personally funded it. So they, he helped raise, he became co-producer based on simply the strength of the script that Tarantino had written. And eventually he helped them raise $1.5 which is probably, and a lot of people seem to agree upon this, looking it up, is way more than anyone thought they would be able to without his assistance. They essentially got a major Hollywood star to contribute funds for this and, and actually act in it and help, I guess, Cartel helped convince other actors who probably wouldn't have starred in it to participate. So... Uh, I think the script, having been shopped around, even then was a unique script, having come from t the mind of Tarantino, than other ones that were being shopped around. It was instantly appealing. I was going to say, can, can you hear me, MJ? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Hello, uh, okay. Um, I don't know how much you guys said, because I just dropped out for a second there. Um, so, with Pulp Fiction, I've always wondered... Um, because this is the only script of his that he didn't directly write himself. Like, obviously, yeah. Roger Avery had a hand in it as well. Yeah. And I've often thought, considering like this is, in my opinion, his best film, definitely his most influential film, and the film that like literally changed the game mm. uh, of Hollywood at the time, I wonder if that is the Roger Avery influence. Hmm. I mean, I give a lot of credit to Tarantino, obviously. Like, he wrote a, the majority of it. 
that we know of, and he directed the thing. But um, having someone to bounce off, I wonder if that helped with the script for this. What Did Avery come in just at the Pulp Fiction time? He didn't help with the Reservoir Dogs, right? Uh, I believe, I mean, from what I've seen, Tarantino, it was Reservoir Dogs was just Tarantino, and then Avery, the first time I see Avery's name is when Pulp Fiction comes up, so. Yep. Hmm. Well, now that we've got you back. One of the stories is definitely Avery's. Yep, sorry. Just going to rewind back to Reservoir Dogs, because I have to try and fix you back up. Oh, I thought we were talking about... No. I thought we were talking oh, no, about no. Pulp Fiction. No, no, we're, we're I, just wrapping up, wrapping up Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, I had to get Mad Matt to get oh. helping me out and talk about some fun facts whilst I try and dealt with you. <laughs> I was like, huh. But My yeah. apologies. I jumped ahead. No, it's okay. <laughs> I was like, oh boy. Uh, I, just saw, I just saw the Pulp Fiction poster here and I'm like, oh, he must have moved on. Yeah, yeah, that's my bad. MJ switched the poster. Now, because um, what happened what to get your audio back in, I had to load up the next one, but I didn't realize the post was there. So I was like, oh, bugger. Don't let the people know how the, don't let the yeah, people don't, know how the sausage Don't pull the curtain, don't draw the curtain back for them. I'm this is supposed to be a highly about, polished podcast. It is, but I'm working with a bunch of amateurs. It's upsetting <laughs> me. <laughs> but, it's uh, not my fault. The, the thing dropped it, you prick. <laughs> But, MJ, for the love of God, tell me about Reservoir Dogs. Just give thank me your you, review. Thank you. So, I rewatched this because it's one of the four films I managed to rewatch. This, uh, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, and Kill Bill. And this one was the most disappointing going back to rewatch because uh, it just seems to have aged not too well. And it's maybe nitpicky, but. That iconic slow motion shot of where they're all walking together and it's got the music and the title card. I hate that slow motion shot because it looks so crap now. Uh, and I'm not sure if it was like a Netflix thing, but the audio was horrible. And I might pull it down to Netflix because it was poor. And I'm hoping it was just Netflix that had poor audio, but I couldn't hear a fucking thing and I had to jack up the volume. And... I never noticed this before, but you boys have picked up on it. Tim Ruff's like acting in the car is over the fucking top, man. Mm-hmm. I was like, this yep. guy is ripping me out of it. He's like, he's been shot, but he's like, his body is contorting in all sorts of shape. And he's like, oh, I've been shot. First of all, shot. there's not that much blood in the human body either. He's like lying in a swimming pool of his own juices <laughs> yeah. at the end of that. Guy, there's no way there's that much blood. A lot. But we get back into that with Django Unchained too. <laughs> Shootout scene, but yeah. But, Sorry, MJ, go ahead. And my final point, and I think this is probably some of that reoccurs throughout it. Uh, Tantino just always feels like the odd guy out. He feels like he's the little dork who gets to hang out with the cool kids. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I'm like... How do you... How do you feel about him as an actor? I'm not sure because I always because I know who he is. So it's just distracting because I'm like, oh, it's Tarantino. Uh, Like you might try, but he it comes off a bit smug, maybe, and it just rips me out of the film. Well, I'll I'll tell you this: Uh, in Reservoir Dogs, it didn't bother me. 
But I think when people's when Quentin Tarantino's reputation started to precede him, and people started to find out what he looked like, maybe more so than other directors, mm. and then started recognizing him in the films, I feel like that became a problem for me. Mm. No, it's hard for me to look past the fact that the guys, the guy that's directing this film, like Pulp Fiction, for example, and then seeing him act in that, it's very distracting. Um, I mean, as an actor guy, in himself, maybe not that bad, but this guy, like, if just jumping ahead a little bit in time yeah. to around yeah. the time of Jackie Brown, this mm. guy was talking about actively searching for acting roles and other projects and being in plays, and apparently people yeah. were encouraging him, saying he's really good and stuff. It's like mm. the guy. Uh, Again, and I'll jump forward again to Pulp Fiction. I'll post Pulp Fiction after the reception that got. The guy's yeah. ego for everything he does like got so far out of control that he thinks like his writing is poetry and he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then all these people telling him that everything he does is great. So that obviously has inflated his ego. Um, and that came crashing down to earth around the time of Death Proof, but we'll get to that obviously well, later. Well, but, uh, his acting has never been a strong suit. It's never, it's not as bad no, as I some never, people say it is, but he should not be acting. <laughs> Just don't do it. I, I, Especially I think we can all accent. Don't we can all agree the acting's not strong. We, I think we can all agree that, right, MJ? The acting's not strong. <laughs> but I think it's the choice to go in the movies that mm. is even worse. Maybe he's not a whor- the worst actor in the world. I get it in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, of course. See, I, I understand mean, I it in Reservoir Dogs because, like, it's his his big movie. He he wanted he would be in it because it might have been his only chance to make a movie. So, like, same thing with Kevin Smith putting <laughs> himself in Clerks. Like, yeah, yeah you got to chuck yourself in. Um, uh, well, after that, no. Nah. <laughs> well, let's move on, like, because you've just brought the man down. So let's get to his masterpiece. <laughs> let's get onto Pulp Whoa. Fiction. Go on, Josh. Go. What do you think of um, Pulp Fiction? I think it's a masterpiece. <laughs> I think it's one of the greatest films of the 20th century. It's probably one of the greatest films in my lifetime. Um, probably the most influential film of the 90s. I don't think he'll ever top it. After you've just, like, kneecapped well, the guy. Well, you you just like, be like this guy is such an egomaniac and all of that shit. It's like, well, <laughs> let's get on to the next now film. Now I'm going to pump him up. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm going to pump him up. No, but like, it is hard to contain your ego after you make something this good and this groundbreaking and this influential. So like, I can understand where the ego exploded because of how great this film is. Like, there's just no way around saying it, but it's like, it's one of the greatest films of the last 30, 40, 50 years, if not ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it got completely robbed of the Academy Award for Best Picture. Completely robbed by that piece of trash, Forrest Gump. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it won Best Screenplay. And some other I mean, people try and say that, that, other, that other piece of... Uh, well, I won't call it a piece of crap, but that other overrated thing uh Shawshank Redemption also should not have beaten Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction for anyone to sit there and watch those three films and say that Pulp Fiction is not the best one. 
doesn't know what they're talking about. Because it's yeah. just, it's perfect. It's a 10 out of 10. Sorry, Tim. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wonderful piece of movie. Yeah. Four and a half out of 10. Uh, yeah. Four and a half out of five stars or whatever he called it. Uh, no, this is a five star movie. Um, we obviously get into it a bit more in a yeah. sec. But yeah, it's easily in my, t- you know, one of my all time favorite movies. Whether that's in the top 10, I've no idea. But um, yeah, it's his best film. He'll never top it. It's perfect. Wow. See, uh, I'm just going to jump in. When people say iconic, I have to use that word with like reservation. But this is one of those films I remember as like a kid. I saw the poster and that shot of Uma Thurman with the cigarette and she's laying on like what appears to be a bed. It's such an iconic shot. And when that film came out, I would never have seen it at the time. But I saw that poster and I always just remember that poster. And I think I caught it when I was maybe 13 or 14 on BBC. And it's one of those films where it's constructed in a way where you could just fall into it at almost any point. Because uh, yeah. when I first watched it, I think the first part I saw uh, was with the gold watch. Mm. Uh, yes. Like, yeah. it's that storyline. Yeah. Yep. And so it's crazy for me to think that I'd have saw Pulp Fiction in a way where I've saw deep into the film, the ending, and then still be able to watch it again and not be spoiled by the ending per se, if that makes sense. Because mm. mm-hmm. uh, the way it's yeah. constructed. It just blew my mind because it was the first type of film I had ever seen, especially as like a 13 or 14 year old, because films really are constructed in that non-linear path or with such a diverse cast where they cross over into each other's storylines but it's a separate story it's like a short story for each film that a character from the other story cameos in certain parts Uh, but I have to agree it's really well made and I've got some more notes later on but Come on, Matt. I know you're dying to speak about this one. Yeah, this is um, this is unquestionably his greatest movie. I mean, it's the closest thing to a masterpiece he's probably ever going to achieve um, as a director. I mean, it, it's, it may be possible to make a film that matches this, but matches its greatness. But that's pretty unlikely at this point, I think. And it's almost guaranteed he'll never be able to create a film better than this. I mean, this film, when people say that this is an iconic film, they're right. I mean, it is. But it's not just because of... People have to understand, it's not just because of how great the film itself is. The film, in comparison to what Hollywood was doing at that time as well, it was a lexicon movie. I mean, movies after this... I mean... We can get into it, but it, I, here, I mean, this, the side effects and impacts of this movie, the reverberations, like the the guys with guns frenzy uh, after this movie, that was a trend in, I mean, we could, we could count them on, 
a list of hundreds after this movie of I think that that um, Samuel Jackson, John Travolta scene specifically of them being hitmen with a sense of humor and you know these human beings talking before they murder someone. How many movies took that after? I mean, just that the violence. Um, I love this movie. This movie is in my top ten all time. Yeah. Um, that's just how I feel about it. Um, I don't think anyone could challenge the greatness of this film legitimately. Uh, that's my Cole's notes on how I feel about it. I, I just want to interrupt to like. Mm. When people say this is like his masterpiece and his best film, why? Like, what makes it so special? What? Because for me, I tend to not get too caught up with like, oh, it was groundbreaking at the time. Because for me, I might have watched Pulp Fiction, Glorious Bastards, Hateful Eight, all in one week. There's no time difference for me. It's not like I was there at 94 and be like, Oh wow, like do you get what yeah. I mean? What what makes it his masterpiece for you compared to the rest? Like what stands out specifically to elevate it? For me personally with Pulp Fiction, I think I think that what made what separates it from the others, not not his own films, just other films in general, and especially at that time, was that I mean, no one had brought such graphic displays of violence and rape and drug overdose and racism and uh, uh, violence against women and made it palatable for the masses to a point where it was acceptable and made cool. I mean, I mean, there's there's a scene in this there's a drug overdose in this scene and there's a 15 minute argument about what's the best way to make her come back to life. All the while she's dead in front of the camera, which, by the way, the top of her scalp is practically touching the lens. Um, and not only that, there's no cutaways. You see a, not, a needle full of adrenaline plunged into her chest palate. It's absolutely insane. There's there's anal rape in this movie. Well, there's anal rape. I mean, has any movie ever actually showed anal rape? I mean, no. Every set piece in this movie, every... How many chapters are there? I mean, there's probably six, five. five or six. Each one of them is its own epic movie. I mean, it's just incredible. And the, t the talent that's on screen, the, the, the um, precise excellence in which it's orchestrated, and then on top of that, no one was doing that at that time. Hmm. Uh, it, it, that, these are the reasons why this stands out to me. Um, well, I'm, I'm just going to run down a few of my little notes here, like some conversation points. And while I noticed him this one the most was how he uses casual conversation in everyday life of his characters that mm. makes it feel authentic. So you know how we could just be chatting shit and then it leads into something else. His guy's talking about random crap and then all of a sudden it's like, so you're taking the bus's wife out. You heard about this guy yeah. who got thrown off a fucking building or for a foot massage or something like that. Uh, it's like, in any other film, you see like two hitmen going to a place and it's dark, it's moody, it's tense. But this is just like, 
yeah, I'm supposed to take the boss's wife out. And I'm like, wait, what? He's like, yeah, I'm just going to pick her up, take her to a bar, bring her back. Done. <laughs> Nothing special. And that helps build up because the exposition, and it is exposition, feels natural because it's important to establish that he will be taking this lady out later on in the film, but there's these dire consequences. And when you watch Emma Furman's character and John Travolta's character, it's very flirtatious and you're like, this guy is on fucking thin ice. And you think they're going to get, get, get it on when they get back to her house. But the film takes that like left swerve and she's had an overdose instead. Yeah, it's subverting the plot. And, it, you know, the, the plot direction takes these wild U-turns in his movies. And it's one of the things I said that started in Reservoir Dogs, one of these Tarantino-isms of something happening like she snorts heroin instead of cocaine well the date's over the night's ruined how are we going to deal with it it's it's wild because you think oh shit there is actually something worse than banging this woman and getting yes, caught yeah it's her diet <laughs> it's i like, mean I, I, how about like just the image i don't know josh if you remember of her like foaming at the mouth with the eyes roll it's terrifying I mean, had anyone ever depicted a drug overdose like that before? I mean, just seeing that. But I have to say, the one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is when they get him back, when John Travolta throws her in his red Corvette or whatever the hell it is, and he hauls her into the drug dealer's house and splots her on the floor. And it's I think what happens with the, this movie and, and others is he grounds all of these giant lofty, very not common life things of hitmen and drug drug bosses bosses wives overdosing with these realistic conversations of what would really go on if human beings were living this out like john travolta yelling at the drug dealer to go find the, her, the adrenaline shot and them not knowing how it works just like me and you wouldn't it's just so funny that scene for me is so funny to watch and it sort of falls into the, some of the conventions I, I call Tarantinoisms, where it's, you know, dialogue-driven narrative or this black humor, things that he makes funny that wouldn't normally be funny. Like a drug overdose and people arguing over how to deal with it. Well, that's not funny in everyday life, but the way he writes the dialogue in this, it's funny. Um, yeah. yeah um, so. To go back to something you brought up before... Uh, Deliverance actually had some good old man-on-man -man anal rape. That's true. That is true. <laughs> that's not. That is true. That's not. That is true. That is true. That is true. That is true. That that image is uh, not. When I watched. Uh, I just when wanted I watched, to know. Uh, just uh, sorry. Just that to is true. For Jesus Christ. Uh, when me and my friend watched uh, Zombieland in the theaters, we're the only two people who laughed at the "You got a pretty mouth." Yeah, because that would have flown uh, over everyone's movie. head for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, look, the movie itself is just... It It does subvert. Every time you think the story is going to go one way, it goes another. It's a story yeah. that uh, always has you on your toes because you never... Like, Tar Tarantino kills off John Travolta halfway through the film. 
But yeah. then we see him come back, and then we see, like, it jumps all over the place. And it's like MJ said, like, you can jump in at any point in the story and um, not feel like you've missed anything because it's like these great little uh, side crime stories. Like, there is no A story, really. It's just all. Uh, and even like, it almost feels like at times that Tarantino doesn't even care about what the story is. Yeah. Or what the plot's meant to do. Like, I remember seeing an analysis once of um, the scene where Tarant- uh, where Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson are going to to the apartment and they stand outside yeah. talking about Mayor um, Wallace and what he's going to do and stuff. And you can see, like, Tarantino Mayor places Wallace, yeah. the camera by the door that they're meant to go to. And it's almost like the film yeah. saying, hey, like... We're, we're, we're going here now. Like, it's time for the action to happen, but, like, the characters aren't interested. And yeah. that really is the the main part of his style, is not uh, subjugating himself to the rules of what he's meant to do, of always just doing whatever he wants to do, and having real life intrude on film. Yeah. And he does that better than any other time he's ever done it is in this film. And it yeah, you're talking MJ before about you know at the time yeah it's groundbreaking but um even still today this film still holds up and still I would say is a one hundred percent one hundred percent if you released if you released this now it's it'd still be the same like it's absolutely it would, brilliant like this movie would be one of the greatest films of the year if it was released this year it's just mm. so it, it, it hasn't would be aged a bit the greatest film. It would yeah. be the greatest film. Yeah. People would know what to do. And this guy, uh, it was because of this film that, like, you have, he, he became an adjective. Like, people talk about Tarantino yeah. dialogue or all oh, that scene yeah. was mm. uh, a Tarantino-like scene or, like, Tarantino-like characters or, like, um, when it's a very violent scene, apparently people on set, even to this day, are like, oh, we went full Tarantino with it. Like... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's, it's because of this film. Yeah, it's... Uh, let, it's yeah, sorry, go ahead. It's perfect. It's yeah. a perfect film. There's it, nothing... It is a perfect... It's perfect. Nitpick about it. Even Tarantino's little acting role in this is fine. <laughs> like, it's like... Everything is good and everything, like, works. There's nothing that doesn't work for me. I, like, I think I saw this probably around... I would have been about 10, 10 or 11. I remember my mum let me watch the first scene with Tim Roth and Honey Bunny. And I was like, this is awesome. And I got like sent to bed and I snuck out and had to watch it. I was like, this is just the greatest thing I've ever oh, seen. Like, um, and then being, you know, mentally scarred by fucking the rape scene. I was like, Jesus. Oh my God. So I'm just going to rewind a second. In terms of like this being a perfect film, mm-hmm. okay, but it when, is perfect though. No, it it's is. not. It is. Like if we're saying it perfect, it's got no flaws. There are production flaws. If we're gonna use the that word perfect, that that doesn't factor in for me. What I call a perfect film. To me, when I say this film is perfect, when I give films a ten out of ten or a or a five stars out of five star wonderful piece of movie, I say it's. <laughs> Is this film as good as it can be, and does it achieve everything that it sets out to do? 
Yeah. And I mean, uh, MJ, you're going to bring up, like, inconsistency scene to scene, like continuity sh- stuff, no, maybe? No, I'm talking about, like, there's these weird, like, flash cuts when they shoot fucking that guy with the burger. They shoot yeah, him, yeah, yeah. and it cuts to oh, yeah, Travolta, yeah, yeah. and they do this little flash cut, and I think they do the flash to that. ease the cut, but it's just really distracting. And there's this other thing where he's in the room with, like, the drug dealer and the camera's locked off, but the camera's shaking. And it it's a minor thing, but it takes me out of the scene because it's mm, the camera is rocking. Big Kahuna Burger. That's that new Hawaiian I burger joint, huh? Disagree. <laughs> I disagree. I think MJ needs to be shot in the head. No. Like, like, like if, Marvin. If you're saying if it was released Marvin's another today, one. I, I just gotta. Oh man, I shot Marvin things. in the head. <laughs> but, Here, let me let me bring it back to like these points of Tarantinoism. Let I really feel like we should take our time with this one in lieu of all the others because it's it. Oh, Pulp fiction is always so about Jackie Brown. Jackie <laughs> yeah, Brown. Moving on. Um, <laughs> are are go we gonna talk about the foot fetish thing because? I noticed the first foot shot in this film. I can only that pick was the this, one. Getting uh, into t- it became a Tarantinoism in this movie. I've got it right on my list. There's definitely something about feet, but um, it, like subversive plot direction. We talked about it almost. I there's probably twenty heroin overdose on a date. Their buddy shot mid conversation in the back of the the car. <laughs> um, there's a chase scene between mortal enemies that gets interrupted by redneck confederate flag-waving rapists um you know dialogue-driven narrative you know royale with cheese daddy's watch fox force five uh the heroin purchase yeah, christopher talk- walken oh my christopher that walken, scene is incredible it's perfect it's that is best. incredible that watch has to be worth trillions of dollars for how many it's anal fine. cavities um whenever i i, I always <laughs> quote uh this watch <laughs> Whenever a watch is around, I always quote Christopher. Walken. <laughs> Daddy's watch. But that scene is so. Per- get, before I get into the other Tarantinoisms, that Shut scene is so perfect exactly. because you want to know why. You want to know why he's willing to risk his life to go back to get this stupid watch, and I, really the only reason why it's worth it is the way they tell it. They make it basically the most important thing you could ever have in your life and your entire family's ancestry had to do with uh, using it as a fuck a suppository to get it to safety and so you can have it. So of course you're going to risk your life. But, uh, you know, hyper-violent set pieces, another, it's right, you know, Travolta's death shit, the big kahuna burger, the shotgun rapist, um... Subversive black love, humors right there with Go ahead. I love bring up the hyperviolence of how this film ends in that it subverts your expectations. In that it doesn't end in this big bloody shootout. Yes. It ends he peppers because it of like the, the whole story. film is about redemption and about yes. and that's what it all comes to a head at the end. As this man gives not only for redemption for himself, but redemption for potentially two other people. Well wow. say, so, Hey look, go off and live your life, like I'm letting you go. When uh, people ever talk about divine intervention, I always think of Pulp Fiction. Yep. Well, they, they weren't shot. They weren't shot. It went around them. Uh, I, yeah. can, I can never remember the lines, 
but like where they look back at like the fucking wall afterwards yeah. it's like your motherfucking eyes ain't seeing the same shit I've seen I'm quitting because <laughs> yeah. he's looking it's like the fucking bullets have gone through for him somehow and not killed him like the placement of the bullets and it's weird because I never noticed it but obviously John Travolta's character has to keep going to the toilet a lot throughout the film and yeah that's apparently linked to like the drug use and it like constipating him and stuff like that and that's why he has to keep going and like that's a level i hadn't even thought of and i was like oh fuck yeah and i was like oh shit that's like an extra level (laughs) of like detail exactly and it got him killed but drugs didn't kill him but they did kill him in a sense uh but yeah bernard killed him like even I th- what I personally, the the Tarantinoism I think is the most influential to for attracting viewership and occult status of of his films is hmm. the the subversive black or subversive black humor, dark humor stuff. Hmm. I think that's the stuff that uh, translates the most over you know over even more than the hyper violence and the clever dialogue. I think it's sort of the dark humor that seems to. In my opinion, keep drawing me back the most. Well, it's and that ability—it's movie... that ability to make you uh, to make you laugh and then to make you shocked and pulled in like within a matter of seconds. Like, not yeah, not only that, that, it's being shocked ability. at what you're laughing at. It's being shocked. You, yeah. you find yourself amazed that you're laughing at guys cleaning up brains in the back of a car. Like, why are we laughing? Um, uh, I know why I'm laughing. A guy's shot in the head, and it's it's funny because it was an accident. You know, he's had his gun on top, and uh, the adrenaline shot argument, like I said. Well, but the other the other thing that was new, I think, in this movie, the the Tarantinoism that he sort of got created in the aftermath of this movie, it was sort of externally. It wasn't even in the movie, but it's revitalizing and elevating the careers of the cast. That sent that was a trend yeah, going man. forward, like. Travolta. Tell you what, and... he needs uh, he needs to do that for Travolta again. Have you seen <laughs> yeah. that fucking last trailer? Jeez. Travolta is terrifying to look at nowadays. It's terrifying. Well, but... as we start to wrap up Pulp Fiction, I just want to bring it back to something. Uh, I noticed a bit more in this film was the editing. Mm. And he tends to use a lot of long shots, uh, Steadicam shots or just long focus shots where he doesn't cut as much. Instead of getting like a close up of someone's reaction, the camera will just stay still, maybe in the corner of the room, like we spoke about earlier in the drug room where he's having the conversation with his drug dealer and he's just sat on the bed and the camera is looking at the mirror so you can see the other guy talking, which is what draws my attention more to the editing and some of the shots and we've spoke about it but the adrenaline shot is really effective i love i love how tense exactly tense it's like maybe one of the most tense movie scenes i think like uh, i'm hard pressed to think of another example but it's up there it's incredible like i love it where he pulls his hand back you get a close-up shot of him close-up shot of the ginger guy close-up shot of the woman with all the metal in the face and he's like <gasps> and the oh, dripping syringe the close-up of the like, dripping syringe held exactly above his head. like that pull focus on it oh. and 
you're talking about, oh, seeing it go in, but you never see it go in because... No, you cuts. don't. You're right. She, well, you see the th- the arm thrust down, and she pops up immediately. Exactly. But you hear, but there's a sound effect yeah. that they put in there, and you can, I I feel it in my chest every time I watch. It's like this thump. You you say it, and I was like, it happens. But the sound effect is so undercooked, because in films <laughs> it might be like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's like. It, it's what it would sound like to tap a syringe into a sternum. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and I was like, all that suspense is like, oh, it's... <laughs> you expecting something more from it, aren't you? But the way yeah. she pops up, it's crazy. Do you believe the story that someone passed out in the theater from that? Yes. From Do that you? Scene? No. Do you? You don't <laughs> nah, believe it? I don't believe that shit. I, I was like, they passed out, woke up to the fucking gimp seed. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> it's the same thing. Let's... That's the one, the Gimpsy is the one that shocked me when I first saw it. I was like, what am I watching? Well, that was so fucking crazy. That's the oh, thing true. where we're talking about shots that linger on reactions. And I love it where he fucking goes into that shop and he's picking his weapon of choice. And then it yes. Just... Yeah, it seems it seems uh, within yeah. major scenes like that that whole rape scene in itself, but the scene leading up to it of him choosing between a bat and a chainsaw that. and a katana. It's like that scene is epic. Well, like, it's I like how Tarantino describes that of like going through like different movie <laughs> weapons of like, do I want to be Leatherface? No. Do yeah, I want to yeah, be yeah. Do I want to be this character? No. Do I want to be Zadoichi? Like, like I, that's that, that scene. Like they reference that other... scene in The Simpsons for Christ's sake. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, yeah, I know. It's insane that they do that too. It's that that was when Simpsons started to become. I mean, they also that was still in the golden era of The Simpsons. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we won't talk about but, Simpsons anymore. Um, but in any other movie, like choosing your weapon scene, I mean, it became a thing with John Wick and Matrix. But he grabs the weapon, and oh, you know what he has to do to save. Time. He's decided to save this guy, and you know that there's two guys in there, and one of them is. But so he holds the bat in his hand, and he feels the weight of it, and he goes, "No, this, this isn't gonna work." And he goes to the chainsaw, and he feels, and you're with him because you know what he has to do. So they take the time to let you help him choose his weapon. Um, so the best part of it is like he's letting this dude continually get raped. <laughs> yeah, the guy's like, getting raped in the background. That background <laughs> just, noise uh... of that. That smacking noise in the background, <laughs> and you know that. I like, the one dude's just watching him, and like licking his lips, like waiting for his turn. <laughs> Yo, that close-up sweaty shot. It's so man. Fucked. It's you know so what I always wanted up. to know is uh, what I always wanted to know is what they what he did with that guy. You know, they, I'm gonna take a blowtorch and to Get this medieval on this. I'm gonna medieval, medieval on this. I always wanted okay. to know what he was gonna do to that guy. Anyway, there's. He's gonna go medieval on his ass. He's gonna go. Oh, that guy did not have a good last remaining minutes of his life. Oh my god. There's just like little moments Zed, throughout the film. Zed's dead. And exactly. Zed's dead baby. Zed's dead. I've got a few. I'm gonna watch this movie after this podcast again. I fucking <laughs> love Pulp Fiction. What about like? Pump, it was Pump Fiction in that one scene. Jeez. Uh, you know where he's on about the watch? Pump Friction. If, he captures like this realistic moment and I really love it from Bruce Willis and Bruno. Yeah. Same thing. But Wait, what? 
No, they're two different people. <laughs> but where he's in the car <laughs> and he's having like that fucking rage of anger. It's like, what did one fucking thing? Just a fucking watch. <laughs> Just what? Yeah. And he's like fucking smashing the car up inside. Um, we talk about the cast in this movie. Like, the well, cast in this movie Bernard is fucking insane. Them. Well, do you, either of you two know what happens? Because I don't know who the actresses are for the taxi driver and the girlfriend, the oh, French girlfriend. Um, like, I feel like they just both disappeared French, after this they? film. Oh, no, she's not French. She's um, Latino, right? I thought they were both the French. The one the cab is. Yeah, the one the, the taxi driver. And he has a French girlfriend. Hispanic, and then a French girlfriend. I think they just and those, did, those two scenes are incredible. You know how much this movie was made for? What the budget was? Uh... Four or five million? It's eight million dollars. Eight million dollars in nineteen ninety three money. Mm. It's oh, you know what we've forgotten to talk about is the wolf. The wolf. I love yeah, having tights on this movie. I love that too. Where you guys I love are that from? they then reference it in Seinfeld with Newman. Nah. Newman's the wolf. The worst thing is... Uh, Fuck you, how dare you insult no, Seinfeld? No, the wolf. I reject your hypothesis. <laughs> The wolf is like, uh, I don't know how to put it. Has he been in insurance adverts for you boys in Canada or Australia? No. You mean Harvey Keitel? Yeah. No, I mean no. the wolf because basically oh. it's his character from Pulp Fiction and he's in like a bunch of these English insurance adverts and he's fucking in character. He's wearing the suit and everything. He is the okay, character. So so then you can't argue then that Tarantino is like, he's like a cultural icon. Like what his, like one of his hitmen cleanup squad characters is in an insurance company approved advertisement. Like it's insane. <laughs> like how the fuck, that's just evidence that he is crossed over into uh, like a cultural iconic status from this movie specifically. Cause that's a character. I uh, actually forgot about the wolf cleanup scene. How and can you? The, 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 like, why am I so? Why do I care so much that a nurse wife is about to come home from her night shift? And like, we have to clean uh, this up. Um, you know what else I need to? We need to discuss before the, uh, which is goes into the Tarantino isms and his influence. And I know Prodigy would be very upset if we didn't bring it up. Is the soundtrack? Yes. <laughs> which is amazing and. Iconic, and so the the soundtrack uh, went I mean, again, to numbers. He didn't. I was just gonna say, like, he's not the person who created, you know, putting needle drops into films and everything. Like Scorsese mm. was doing it before he ever did. But uh, is this something to Tarantino? The way he picks songs, where he decides to put them, where he decides to use them. He's yeah, uh, like, got a style of his own. Like the way he weaves. First of all, the choices of the songs are incredible and it's music people would have always normally have heard like that the soundtrack went on the billboard 200 charts and it went to like number 68 after this movie and like that neil diamond song where she's getting ready for her date girl dun, 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 like that went onto the charts after a long time of not being on there but that tarantino Actually, is that was i agree with preach it was Something uh, preaching is when she's getting ready. I think it's she when they come home. Oh, when they come home, right? And she's getting yes, you're right. It's when she's home. But it is a Neil Diamond song. It, like the movie, 
propelled it onto the charts. Um, and that that ter- I agree with you, Josh. Like the 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 soundtrack and the way he uses it, like like the Jackrabbit Slim's dance, like the soundtrack becomes part of the plot where they have a dance off. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, the dance. There's bef- another iconic thing is that dance. Yeah. Like, is that, that dance is so iconic? Is that restaurant or cafe like a real place, or is that just no? Built? So so of the eight million dollar budget. The, the majority of the budget, the largest chunk, went to building that restaurant in the warehouse. It cost like $150,000 to build Man, that set. If they actually built that thing, I reckon they'd have made a killing. Yeah, it said it was the most cost costly part of the production was building that restaurant. And Steve Buscemi's contract for being Buddy Holly waiter. <laughs> See, that was the thing, because... I was going to like shit on like the production design of like some of this and like, oh, it looks a bit shoddy, like just random house rooms, which they are. And then I see like the diner and it's like, God, imagine being the location scout for this film. You've earned some serious dollars if you found this place. Uh, but the fact that well, you no restaurant it, on earth is that cool. Like that is the fucking coolest restaurant on earth. Like it, that makes that makes the Hard Rock Cafe look like fucking Wendy's. The <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, as we come to a close on Pulp Fiction, do you have any other thoughts, guys, before we move on to his next film? No, just I, I didn't. Lo- yeah, it's a great movie. The, the aftermath of what it created, like, like I said, the guys with guns frenzy in Hollywood of, um, you know, hitmen and and I and the other trend that happened after this is like '60s and '70s iconoclastic music soundtracks being pumped mm. into every movie after this. That's sort of it really became watered down and it was definitely inspired by Tarantino, but yeah, yep. a great uh, movie. Also it won the Palm Door, forgot to mention that. Yes. And it won best screenplay at the Oscars, but big deal. He got robbed of best picture. And... Do you think Jackson should have won best supporting actor? Someone should have been over, in there. Uh, over the guy in Edward. That's a tough one. No, didn't uh, I thought? Sure. No, I thought guy that, uh, Forrest what? Gump won. No, uh, Tom Hanks. No, uh, best supporting best actor. Oh, best supporting actor. actor. You're right. Because Jackson was nominated. Who is the lead actor in this movie? Uh, is it Samuel Travolta, L. Jackson. I think got nominated. I know at the Spirit Awards, Travolta and Jackson were nominated for best actor, but at the Oscars, Jackson got best supporting. Well, who, before so, we move on, who was in it the most? Was it Bruce Willis, Travolta, or... I gotta look I up who was Travolta. on screen most. Samuel sure L. Jackson? Travolta. Travolta? It's Travolta probably by a little bit. Mm. I mean, but, you want to talk about revitalizing his career. He was... He had nothing before this movie. And then he, he started being in Phenomenon. And what was that Angel movie? Michael. And like this, like a lot of stuff. All the way through to... I mean, I'm pretty sure he's still coasting on, yeah, on Pulp say, like, Fiction. Well, I was he's gonna had say that, that revival with the meme. Like, what has he done since Pulp Fiction that's yes. been worthy of... Battlefield Earth. Fucking hairspray. Uh, how dare you insult Face Off. Yeah. Whilst we talk about that, um, I'm going to... I was going to say, uh, what are you going to do? I was going to move us on to Jackie Brown, unless you've got some well, I was going to say one last thing of like coasting is I'd almost say, and I hate to 
say it, but like he really has been coasting off Pulp Fiction since his yeah, Tarantino. That's what stuff. I said. I it's like it, he could have it, done It so nothing. propelled him that he he had the momentum from that one movie all the way through to like, like at least the mid two thousands. At least, I mean, a lot of people I'd said Swordfish was, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about Tarantino. Like Tarantino is just oh Tarantino himself. Yeah, is uh, been coasting off this film like. Everyone goes to see his films every time out because of Pulp Fiction. Hey like MJ, before we go to before we go to Jackie Brown, can I quickly do what he did in between there, just go, quickly? Go for yeah, it. Yeah. So as soon as Pulp, like right around the time Pulp Fiction and after, he finished writing the True Romance screenplay, just before True uh, Pulp Fiction actually that got released. That movie deserves its own episode. Great movie. Um, he finished writing Natural Born Killers screenplay. Um, it actually was a big altercation with the producer of that movie because he didn't like how the final product came out compared to his screenplay, but he wrote that. Him and he wrote, uh, all of the stone had a huge falling out. Yeah, the they really they edited it. And it, it actually became a lawsuit. And uh, Anyway, uh, he was an uncredited writer on Crimson Tide screenplay. He was an uncredited writer on The Rock screenplay. He uh, was approached. Speed. Yeah, this is what gets me. He was offered speed as director, and he turned it down. To oh, write I was talking speed. about. I was just talking about the drug. <laughs> I think he did that. I think he accepted that. <laughs> um, yeah, speed, and then and then he was approached and offered Men in Black. Like, like what kind of alternate universe has Quentin Tarantino directing Speed? And Men in Black. And then finally, just in that time period before Jackie Brown, he wrote and shopped a script for Silver Surfer. Uh, but he was turned down. He really wanted to do a Silver Surfer movie. I still want to see a great Silver Surfer movie. I don't necessarily want Tarantino to write it, but <laughs> it's one of my favorite characters. It's, it'll be weird to see, like, Silver Surfer ODing on heroin and needing an adrenaline shot by Galactus. Uh, maybe they'll <laughs> they'll work that in with uh, Spock and Kirk and. Oh, God. And final and finally, MJ Four Rooms. He directed that one part in Four Rooms. What a piece of garbage. <laughs> what a piece of. Yeah. I I have to watch that again. It's been a while. And he uh, he acted in Desperado. His buddy Robert Rodriguez. And he acted in. Uh, from dusk till dawn. Hmm. And this was all before Jackie Brown. He wrote Brown. that so, too. He wrote yeah, he, yeah, he, that, actually that was his first writing job ever. He had written from dusk till dawn before Reservoir Dogs way back in the eight, late 80s apparently. So, Damn. Sorry, yeah. there you go. As we move on to Jackie Brown, I have not got much to say about this film. Like this is just going to be you two boys because this film just never does it for me. I think I've only watched it twice and it just loses my attention. I tried to rewatch it for this show and it just ended up as like background noise for me. Like there's no hook for me. There was no like, oh, this is good. I was like, huh, okay. And to you I fellas. Just I go ahead. Go ahead, Josh. I think this is one of his best films, personally. Mm. I think it's probably in his top three or four. Uh, I love it. Every time I revisit it, I get more out of it. I remember the first time watching it, thinking, oh, that was good. But coming off Pulp Fiction, like, nothing was going to live up 
to that film. But uh, I quite like Jackie Brown a lot. I think it's his most mature film by a lot. Like, no film he's made, including Pulp Fiction, is as restrained and as mature as this one. Um, I think it's just brilliant. Um, and very underrated. And it's a hangout, chill movie about a bunch of criminals, really. Uh, and I think all the actors are fantastic, in particular Pam Greer and Sam Jackson and Robert Forrester. Um, yeah, I and I love the sequence with Chris Tucker. It's one of the only times Chris Tucker's not the most annoying person on the planet. And that in itself is an accomplishment. Um, great soundtrack. I love the story. I love the whole sequence towards the end where the whole money swap occurs at the mall. I think that's great. Uh, yeah, I don't know what your problem with it necessarily is, MJ. I think it's great. And it's the only Tarantino film that he has written and directed that is based off something else. Like, he mm. obviously developed it off Rum Punch, the Elmore Leonard no uh, novel. So it's got that going for it, that he's done something different. I wish he'd have done stuff like this for the rest of his career, like maybe not necessarily all the time, but something either based off another uh, piece of material or um, just something a bit more reflective and slow and restrained that doesn't have to end in extreme horrific violence each time. But uh, not that that's bad, Just I just wish you'd varied up a bit. But yeah, I quite enjoy Jackie Brown a lot, so there you go. Yeah, I'm more in um, I'm more in Josh's camp than yours, MJ. I think I really, really like Jackie Brown. I just don't love it. But again, uh, I think saying how Josh put it, I I would agree that it like it's a more restrained uh, approach to filmmaking as far as Tarantino's concerned. It's much more subdued in terms of. Um, all the Tarantinoisms we talked about earlier, like the hyper violence, is way dumbed down. I mean, people are shot hilariously slow, hilariously so, or violently so. But it happens, but it's not so. It's not as pornographic in this movie, if you know what I'm saying. Um, uh, uh, first of all, try following up Pulp Fiction with anything. I can't imagine. I was still only ten years old when this came out, but. Um, can you imagine the the pressure and the hype for this movie following Pulp Fiction? I think, I'm actually think it's quite refreshing that he went with something much more subdued. Um, uh, yep. this with this sort of style of, uh, of movie, it's definitely not as uh, high energy as Pulp Fiction. I don't think anyone w would accuse this of being better than Pulp Fiction. I think everyone's on the same page there. Um, but again, like I said it's pretty impossible standards to live up to following up. I thought it was a good take on exploitation films. And Elmore Leonard, whose um, novel they based this movie off of, Rum Punch, he said it's his favorite adaptation of all of his novels. Um, and there were 26 adaptations made of his novels. So there you go. Um, one thing I will say... the rights to another novel, too. Of Elmore Leonard still owns the rights to it. Uh, oh, does he? Uh, I thought it was uh, it was exactly what he said it what he wanted it to be. It was a black it was a fresh take with great di uh you know, a dialogue driven, fresh, cool, hip the, uh, take on a black exploitation film. 
I'll, I'll say like one thing that stuck budget out. Black exploitation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Black, big the budget. Black exploitation with the budget. Well, as, as close as he could get being a Hollywood, the hottest thing in Hollywood with A-list cast and, you know, A-list budget. Um, I thought it was good. I thought it was good. Pam um, Greer, too. Okay, so here's what I'll say about Pam Greer. A black woman. <laughs> no, I think he just loved her from growing up and seeing her in the 70s. I think he just wanted to... Because I, I, from what I understand, doing some homework here, she was reluctant to come back. She didn't want to. And I'll say this. Well, you know, I agree she with just you. Done, uh, she'd just done Escape from L.A. And she thought her career was like going to go certain areas because she'd she'd done that she'd done a couple other like movies that she thought was going to like take her places and then uh she had just done escape from la like that one was that a couple years before i think so yeah um one i just finished watching this movie this is a movie i wrapped up just a couple like an hour or so before we started this and one scene that stuck out with me I, li- I really like Robert Forster in this. And again, it gets into a Tarantinoism, that, that, that sort of convention of revitalizing and elevating the careers of the staff or the crew that he, the actors that he casts. Like, for instance, Robert Forster hadn't been in anything for years, and he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor from this movie, and I thought he was great. He's got a lot of screen time, and he's got a great role to fill in the plot. Um... But that scene between Greer and Forrester where they're sitting in her apartment and they're talking about what it's like to get old. Like, you know, she talks about, he says, even it's even a quote, he says, you, I bet you still look the same. It's just, you don't have an afro anymore, which is a direct, they might as well be talking about themselves. It's very self-referential. It's a very, it's a nice homage, I think, that um, is cleverly uh, squeezed into the plot by Tarantino. But I have one problem with the plot with this, Josh. Okay, haven't watched this. Why doesn't Michael Keaton give her a polygraph test <laughs> in that scene? You know when she comes back and she's stolen the money and she's now convincing the cops that it wasn't her? They don't give her a polygraph and it drives me nuts. So that this movie loses points just on that. But other than that... Uh, it's well. a good movie. It's very enjoyable. And one of the my favorite sub... I'll, just to wrap it up here. Um, one of my favorite subplots of any Quentin Tarantino movie is Robert De Niro and his fatal attraction with that surfer chick. <laughs> and he shoots her in that parking lot because she just won't shut her mouth. That is That was always been a subplot that sticks with me. And, uh, you know, it's a very small part of the movie. But. Yeah, like... This film... Does it stand out because there weren't many repeat actors from this further on? Or does that make sense? Like some of his other films, the same actors kind of pop up over and over again. But this film, I felt like maybe it was just It was just Samuel Jackson, wasn't it? Yeah. It's always funny when like these, this was the start of a new sort of, indirect Tarantinoism where people were coming in and trying to get in on the action, so to speak, in a simplistic way of looking at it. Like De Niro hopped on the train here. Mm. Keaton dropped on the train, then you never see him again. In other movies, we'll get to it, but that happens a lot more and more as time goes on. But out of the cast of this film, like this is 
this has the least amount of his actors he reuses and he doesn't mm. really reuse many of the people from this film like just looking at the poster I was like yeah uh, Michael Keaton uh, he was Batman I wonder if he was in anything <laughs> oh really this. I gotta look that up <laughs> yeah he was believe it or not uh, I don't know we might have discussed it a few times on the show uh, yeah I'm sure but if that's all we've got to say about Jackie Brown do you want to fill a sense yeah, so like next was Kill Bill, but that was this was his longest gap between movies of his entire career. So what was Jackie Brown? Ninety seven. Kill Bill didn't come around till two thousand three. Yeah. Okay. So that was that's six years longest gap. In between then, he was up to a bunch here. He was slated to write and direct for uh, Iron Man for New Line Cinema in ninety nine. Wow. Nothing came out of it, but. Uh, I mean, we could talk for a whole show about that. How I mean, if that actually came true and that came about as a movie, I would imagine that that would have changed a lot, and we'd be living in a different world right now. I think. I mean, I can't, I can't speak to how much it would change the course of the Marvel super uh, superhero boom of the early two thousands. But I would think that it would have had a slight effect. Um, he was offered to direct a film adaptation of Green Lantern. He declined oh that. God. That was uh, he declined that, and that was before a script was even written. He was offered the option, so he could have written the um, the the script for that movie, but he decided not to. And then he actually planned to make Inglorious Bastards. At this time, this is yeah. his next movie was supposed to be *Inglorious Bastards*, but he postponed it because he could not come up with an ending, according to him. So he postponed it to and write and direct *Kill Bill*. Like the script was like three to four hundred pages for *Inglorious Bastards*. Yeah, he he needed to do a lot of it. He really wanted to do it, uh, apparently, but uh, he was convinced by his co his people close to him to give up on it because they felt that the the gap was being. Uh, Extended a little longer than it needed to be, and he needed a uh, kick in the butt, I guess. Um, and and Bill, then the little the reason that came up was uh, Pulp Fiction, right? Him and Uma yeah. Thurman were discussing the idea of Kill Bill on the set of Pulp Fiction. Uh, that's it, MJ. That's it. Um, he was basically getting off, uh, you know, slated mm-hmm. to and opting to and dropping out of projects left and right at this time. Well. What do we think of his return? Because for me, Kill Bill watched we, it again um, today, and sorry, wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm shutting your butt down. Um, <laughs> are we talking about Kill Bill as he discusses it, where it's a whole, or are we just talking about Volume One? I'm discussing it is the way I've seen him. So Volume so One, volume, volume Two will be next. Okay. So. Okay, now I just, uh, wanted to, I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, I do want to get onto that later on, though, once we've discussed Volume 2, because was there a re-release the other year, like the whole bloody affair? Yeah, it's only... Uh, he only played it at a at one theatre, I think. So only a select few people in the world have ever actually seen the whole bloody affair. Wow. Yeah, he's never released it. I, I would pay, was that- I'd pay to see... The whole cut together. I'd hmm. buy that yeah. on Blu-ray, no doubt. 
Well, so I guess I guess it was a four and a half hour cut. Apparently, this is what I've I've read. Mm-hmm. It was a four and a half hour cut, and they obviously weren't insane and knew no one could possibly sit through that. And he didn't need much convincing to cut it. And then once it was cut, apparently, Josh, there was editing for each individual side on its own. It was edited first well, as one. Yeah, sorry. Another go thing he said in an interview was they were part the way through shooting. And um, I think one of the Weinsteins said to him, like, this is going to be way too long. Yeah. He's like, why don't we just do it like Lord of the Rings and release it? Yeah. And Tarantino was like, oh, I don't know about that. And then thought about it and thought of, like, halfway through shooting, apparently, thought up where he could cut halfway and it, it yeah. would be the after the Oren fight. So mm. I heard he came up with the idea to do two parts. Oh. Well, let's talk. What do you think? Does it work? Well, in two parts, I think it's kind of weird that it's like a weird trend setting he did here where he split the film into two and other films have gone on to fucking milk that and split themselves into two. It's like, oh, my God, sake. Uh, The Hobbit. It's wild. But I thought this so far out of the aforementioned films, this is probably his slickest film so far. It's. It's a lean film. It's 90-odd minutes long, I think. Uh, I love the soundtrack. Like Everything about this is just on point. Uh, I'm not sure if it was... How long has he been with the editor for this film? Because well, I was going to direct- get into it. edited all of his films up until... Um, up until Django, 2010. I tragically died. Yeah. Because yeah, I was going to get into that. Yeah, this was his closest collaborator for so long, that editor. Uh, was she around... She totally missed. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. Was she around for the, like, Pulp Fiction, like, all his films? Yes. Yeah. She, she right. was the one... All she was with him for everything. Until, until you get to Glorious. Because yeah. Glorious yeah. Bosses was the last time they worked together. And I want to talk about it because you do see a little change, but go ahead. Because everything about this film, production values, everything goes up. Like, it looks well shot. Like, I mean, this is... Because they're still shooting on film, looks beautiful. Uh, the editing's on point. Sound design and Foley, like, I don't think we speak about the sound design enough for his films because it becomes more apparent for me in this film. Like weird sound effects that they use and it makes sense so you know where people are jumping about it's like it it's an old-fashioned sound effect and then when she's fighting with gogo i think and one of them goes through like a table it's i'm pretty sure it's the sound of like a bowling ball hitting pins and getting like a full score yes like I was listening to it because I was speaking to Matt earlier and I heard that sound effect and I looked around it's like, oh, someone's gone through a table, but that's not the sound of someone going through a fucking table. Uh, just, I love this film. Like, I watched it again today and I loved it even more and this was probably his first film I saw in cinema and that's because I snuck into it, like paid to go see something else and walked into this film. Uh, because I think I was like 13 or 14 at the time. And it's so much fun looking back at it. It's got some 
fun dialogue. I like to quote like, "My name's Buck." <laughs> like, it's fucked up. Jeez. But like, <laughs> I just thought it's like to me, it's the anti Jackie Brown, where it is super violent. It's trimmed down. It's to the point. Uh, I think this is the better of the parts. I also liked the idea that they used an anime sequence. It showed that he was exploring yeah. different avenues. I know there was a need to go for animation rather than shooting live action, but I just thought it was really cool. Uh, I want to know what happens to that guy who kills her dad. Uh, because she kills the mob boss, but he's got like an underling who's like this cool bad guy. And oh, in the anime sequence, who yes. kills um? Oh, okay, okay, okay. I was one. I was like, who kills Uma's dad? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, that's that anime sequence. I mean, th- that was probably a first that time to have such a a shift in style mid movie yeah. seem so seamless. I always thought the thing that struck me, and by the way, I'm an anime. F- I love it, so maybe I'm a little biased. But I thought that anime sequence was such a clever way and cool way. I mean, I bet you that also introduced so many people to anime, mm. in a way. I mean, I, the anime was no secret, let's not be... I mean, Pokemon <laughs> was in its heyday then, I mean, but look, if you want to call that anime. Matt, but well, that, uh, that scene probably... You and me to in, anime scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, one day. It, it does have the other funny line that I was listening to and it's describing her revenge and mm. the line is like, lucky for her, he was like a pedophile. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that, oh boy. <laughs> what do we think like, of Lucy Liu in this movie? What did you think of her acting Lucy Liu? I didn't think she was bad. Like, there's nothing wrong with her. I didn't, it's not like with Tim Roth, where I watched it, and I was like, oh, he's really over the top here. I, I just thought she was fine. Like, uh, I didn't think anyone gave a bad performance in this film. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree. Whose turn is it? Let me go. Go for it. Okay, so Kill Bill. Uh, it's hard not to be entertained by these movies. There's, <laughs> um, I think... I think... Uh, Right off the bat, I mean, the subjects that Tarantino is so fearless with the subject material that he just so it just seems so flippantly brushes off and puts on screen like things like the dark again, the darkest horrors of humanity. He'll just throw up there things you won't even realize are happening in life or could be like, for instance, being raped while you're in a coma by a security guard. Or a nurse, or I forget what it was. Like, that's how. Isn't that how we open up this? These two movies is her, not really open, like the first scene, but in the first couple scenes, she's trying to use her pinky toe, right after wiggle, biting his tongue is off. It wiggle your big toe or something like that, and yeah. he's got the Touch fucking the car. He's got the fucking pussy that, wagon. Wiggle the toes in the car. <laughs> the, yeah, that takes place. Yeah, after. it's in the car. She gets to the. You mean the pussy wagon? Yeah. Pussy um, wagon. Yeah. So, uh, Kill Bill overall, I digress there. I think it's really good movie. Really good. Um, they're both, overall as one piece of film, that's the way I look at it, because I saw them back to back. I never saw them in Don't theaters. Jump ahead, I was, 
Yeah, I won't. I won't. But um, <laughs> um, honestly, I'll tell you why Kill Bill loses a few points for me in his overall filmography. It, it was at this point, at this specific movie of all his movies, in the Tarantino verse. I feel like this one doesn't fit in with the rest. This is almost borders on like a fantasy. I know it's a well, revenge if film. You, I know uh, I... If you Go call ahead. it Tarantino, what he says about Kill Bill is that he says that he, that he has two movie universes. That there's the normal Tarantino oh. universe that involves uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, okay. Glorious Bastards, all that stuff. And he says Kill okay. Bill takes place outside of that. And Outside he says of that reality. Kill Bill, okay. he imagines, is the film that the characters in his universe would watch. Okay, then not then I'm actually okay with describes. this. All of a sudden, I mean, it, <laughs> that makes perfect sense because honestly, there's things in this movie that you couldn't have a character from Pulp Fiction sword do. I don't see Bruce. Well, Bruce Willis isn't standing on, on the blade of a airplanes. sword. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, she's. I mean, the crazy eighty-eight scene. <laughs> As incredible as that is, and let's let's get into the specific scenes later. Um, the acting in this movie is the thing that I think carries it the furthest. David Carradine as Bill is a pleasure to watch. Absolute He's, pleasure. Uh, Billy in the first volume, yeah. they use it more like uh, Claw in the old Inspector Gadget cartoon. Actually, yeah, I'm sorry, consider well, it all one movie. You're right. Voice. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I consider it. I'm considering volume two part of the whole thing but uh um as far as the tarantinoisms they're all there uh hyper violence do i even need to see he it was so violent he had to turn the screen black and white for it and then he hits you apparently the well, only in the american version though well that's the one i saw what and now the copy i have the copy i have is also black and white for the crazy 88 fight when it gets so bloody apparently in the what whole bloody mean? affair in the end of Volume 1, when he has the crazy 88 fight, mm -hmm. it cuts to black and white. Yeah, that's what I mean. Because, yeah, so in the whole bloody affair, apparently it doesn't ever cut to black and white. You just, you always see... Yeah, like... Oh, one, wow. In one of the regions, I think, either Japan or one Japan, of those regions, yeah. they had it all in color still. And Was that a censorship yeah. thing, then? I think so. You think? And, and yeah. In one yeah. of the cuts, I'm sure she chops off Sophie's other hand as well. In the trunk of the car, uh, she chops off I the other arm. I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, let me I ask you something. Do you find... Well, why would they have done that, though? Do you find... They, okay, jumping ahead, sorry. Senses. Think ahead to the Django Unchained gunfight scene at the end. Would you say that's any less violent than the than the the katana fight scene and i mean i guess arms are getting chopped off but there's there's it's so comically it's the, it's violent that it's, <laughs> yeah yes yeah, but also like he yeah he, he heightened the color of the red i think oh, there's something yeah. to do with the because i remember hearing an interview with i think it was scorsese to do with taxi driver hmm. and the reason it was almost going to get an x because of this, the last big like violent scene sequence in the film. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. He changed the color of the red in post, and that's what got Taxi Driver an R rating instead of an X. That's in. That's so non-logical. Whatever. It's weird. Okay. It is so weird. Eh? Shit, I don't know. But uh, um, 
I'll let you finish sure, your yeah, thoughts. Okay, yeah, so um, I, I really like this movie. Uh, there's uh, some of the most memorable scenes of his whole catalog are in this movie. Um, I really... The one that sticks out to me um, is that training sequence with Pai Mei. That fucking Pai Mei. I love that's that scene. Two. That's in two. Oh my god. <laughs> You're jumping ahead, bro. I'm sorry, man. I'm, I never agreed to talk to them about them in two parts. I see them as one part, so I can't help it. Um, this is why it's, I knew, I knew MJ. I, I, I said, Josh, I, I'm on your side. I can only speak to them as one film, personally, because it's hard to determine. When you think back on them, it's hard to remember what parts, what's in what. So, um, see, I always find ahead. that really strange that you can't differentiate between them because I obviously saw volume one. And I knew of like the gap to volume two, and I always remember it's she kills. Uh, yeah, she kills the them in order. Yeah. She kills them in she order. Kills, <laughs> she kills uh, the one in front of her kids. No, she doesn't, because that takes place after Oren. No, I'm on about like no, in terms of the film. I'm talking about chronologically. Yeah, no, yeah. but chronologically but, speaking. For me, she'd already killed Oren before the first se sequence happened. But what I'm saying is, like, I can separate the two films. Like, Matt I can, I can as well. I know what happened. How does back. the first film end? Does he? Does it he, ends with is her that when he says she uh, kills Oren, and she and he says, "Does she know about her the daughter?" The daughter's alive. Yeah, that's where it okay. ends. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, um, by the way, um, by the the length issue thing. By the way, just looking back at my notes, apparently she got pregnant during this, and they used that in some of the scenes. But they sort of delayed <laughs> okay. production. They did. They delayed production because she was pregnant. Yeah. That's and then delay. they. And yeah. while she was delayed, Quentin kept filming stuff, eh? Just to try to keep people. In, I don't know. But I guess that sort of contributed to why it was so long. Well, all the. I heard. Uh, I heard he was gonna at one point he had to consider not having her as the bride because it was taking so long because she was pregnant yeah. and he was like, nah, she, I can't it, do it, it with was... anyone else. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Sorry, go but, ahead. Uh, my general thoughts on Kill Bill Volume 1, I think it is one of his weakest films, probably his second weakest film. Um, we that's not to say I dislike it. Here. I just... I just think it's a... Uh, and it's really not the film's fault, I guess, in that it's an incomplete narrative. In that, obviously, he doesn't she doesn't get to kill Bill, so it feels incredibly mm. incomplete. Um, I'd say this is a film of great scenes and great sequences, but as a whole, it's lacking again because of that unable to satis have a satisfying conclusion to the narrative. Um, but again, there are some great scenes and sequences, some good performances. Um, I like the anime scene, even though it's incredibly, as great as it is, like, he shouldn't have done it. Mm. Like, he should have shot that live action, because it's just incredibly jarring. Like, it's like, why is this here? As great as it is, and it's amazing, it's like, Why? Why did you do it? It didn't need to be shot in anime. To actually, the reasons are mysterious. The reasons are mysterious. I have no idea why. I just I know always, that I loved it. I always thought it was because they didn't want to put like a kid with so much fucking blood. I, honestly, that has to be it. 
They're not gonna have a kid. They well, could have worked around think ahead to... <laughs> You could have done anything think... to get around that. Yeah. Fuck, I wonder why they did that. It's... It is odd. I mean, if you see the I mean, sequences in a Takashi Miike film, mm. there's a scene in Why Don't You Play in Hell where a kid is literally, like, sliding through, like, a house full of blood, like, that has just been <laughs> murdered by, like, thousands of fucking dead Yakuza. So, like, don't give me that stuff. Yeah, but no, forget on that. an American production, ass. that might be different. I don't think... Kick ass. Yeah, but this is Tarantino. He's still there an American go. production. Um, Think think about kick ass. I mean, we have a little, um, we have an eleven year old girl like impaling people, but that was yeah. much later. But uh, yeah, I, I, well, I, I can't think of reason probably, why. Um, um, well, I was just gonna say like this is his uh, most influential film in terms of wearing his influences on his sleeve. Like he crams so much different things. I know the way he describes it is like referencing every every genre of exploitation he, he kind of saw kill bill as his indiana jones and like spielberg and george lucas were paying tribute to like the serials mm. that they grew up loving and he's with kill bill he's paying tribute to all the genres of exploitation that he loves so you get like literally everything he's ticking off different things and that can kind of get a bit annoying at times it's like because he's not telling a cohesive narrative and that it constantly feels like it's changing. Um, which is fine for the heightened universe that he's telling it in. It's just as a film, again, I'd say it's more good pieces than it is a whole. Where Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown and a couple of the other films we're talking about later, I feel, are more cohesive. I feel like this is just a great collection of scenes um, or moments, and again, that's not to say I dislike the film. It's just that'd be my criticisms of it. Um, I love the Crazy Eighty Eight sequence. I love the sequence where she's on the bikes and she's following the crazy, uh, following Oren on the bikes. Um, uh, I love the scene where she goes in, meets up with Sunny Chiba, and gets the sword. Um, there's a lot of stuff I like in it. As again, just like I said, it's just I don't think it's one of his best films by any stretch. I think, as MJ said, it's very slick. And it looks very good, but again, it's like he's lifting so much from different things. So, so that's um, what's so especially wild. this time. Oh, it Grace is wild. I agree with that. It is wild and to it watch. It is nuts. No, um, I mean, what was I gonna say? Uh, Something else was gonna sorry, say. Just you to go interrupt ahead. you. Like, you know how we talk about uh, a lot of films these days referencing the 80s and picking up from that? I think the thing with Quentin Tarantino, a lot of that will go past my head because I haven't seen a lot of the stuff that's influenced them. The only thing for me mm. that I see the influence is probably the Bruce Lee suit. Uh, mm. Okay. That's Get the only down. thing that I pick up on. Uh, so to me... This is why I, mean, I love his films. The whole thing is fresh. The, uh, but I know he mixes stuff in a the, lot. Stuff in the hospital, I know he directly influences De Palma and mm. the Australian horror film Patrick. Um, he references a lot of spaghetti western stuff. He references a lot of Japanese gangster films, kung mm. fu films. Like, this is definitely his most um, cut 
and paste film. Yeah. And I'd say this is a style that he's he's used for the for the rest of his career. And I'd almost say like it's to his detriment in that as fun and entertaining as this is, this doesn't I'd hate to say it doesn't have depth, because the depth definitely comes in volume two and there's a lot of meat there. But um it's his most immature film by a lot. Um and can I, can I... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I I think I fall in between you two. Uh, I'm hearing that, you know, MJ really likes this film. You're sort of on the other end. I'm in between, and I sort of touched on why. It's definitely the most, I don't want to call it fantasy, because it's not. It's a revenge, it's revenge porn, right, basically. But I think a little of the thing that lo- loses it for me is it's lacking in what, I find my favorite Tarantino is, which is the grounded in reality stuff. There's a bit of a superwoman complex with the bride where she can't be killed. I mean, she's yeah. literally taking out a room full of trained katana wielding Japanese mafia and she comes out of it. I mean, that it was so cartoonish. It almost took me out of it, and the fact that she was shot in the head and wasn't killed, and she's buried in a coffin underground and she can't be killed. It's like, I find a lot of this is on the, if there's a spectrum of Tarantino, and the one side is, God, what would it be? I guess more of the Reservoir, maybe the Jackie Brown, a really realistic sort of uh, crime drama, and this, I definitely lean to the Jackie Brown side Reservoir Dogs, realistic realism, Tarantino, than the Kill Bill. And I think that's probably where I lose the most points because I just felt like nothing this chick did was going to get her killed. Bill was going to die. Um, but other than that, I do fall in between. I don't. I really no. enjoy this movie. I just don't hate it. So, like, I understand those criticisms completely yeah. in terms of like where she's killing all the Yakuza, like fucking mad woman. But she does yeah. have that fight with. Sit go go like the chicken v schoolgirl uniform with the mace. Yeah, that was fucking nuts. Like that's wild because she's getting her ass kicked in that, and she's getting strangled, and she's about to get killed, and then she gets that like lug with the nails, and it manages to save her. But I just, I am just again watching it today. I was just fully entertained. Like it just gelled all together well oh, for yeah. me. But then. I remember saying to Josh about Stranger Things where sometimes I had issues where they was referencing things and it wasn't as good. Now, this is where it helps for me with Quentin Tarantino is where he's drawing from like a pool that I haven't really seen. And so yeah. a lot of this stuff just goes straight over my head. I'm like, oh, this is cool. Excellent. Oh, that looks nice. Cool. Uh, and it just works. I think I had some other notes, but again, I think the word slick suits it very well. It's just. Can we talk about part two? Because I honestly, I don't even, that's what I remember the majority of stuff from. We'll move on to part two, but it was just like a weird dip for me because I thought, oh, I can watch Kill Bill uh, easily because it's 90 minutes compared to like the two and a half hour films that he starts to ramp up towards. But, as you say, let's move on to Volume 2. Uh, what, what is it that draws you, like, as a whole, what are your thoughts on Kill Bill, if you 
see them as one film because I see them as two different films. Well, well, volume two for me is more memorable because there's a conclusion. Like mm. when you cut a film in two, it's really hard to. I haven't. Obviously, if you watch this, it's easy to remember, but I haven't seen Kill Bill in a while. It's not one yeah. of the movies I was able to catch up on before the podcast. Damn. I've seen it numerous times, both of them. But again, you always have to watch them separately, and you're not always to, able to do that at the same time when you do watch these movies. But I think for Kill Bill 2, there's a conclusion, yeah. and I actually feel there's a lot more interesting stuff going on in that movie. Like I said, that Pie May training is fantastic. It is fantastic. I love the training sequences with the bride, and even doubling back with um, what's uh, what's uh, one-eyed girl's name? Black Mamba gets her eye plucked, her nah, other eye plucked Black, out. Black Mamba is the bride. That's always a funny line where uh, Fox Lady says, "I should be fucking called Black Mamba." <laughs> <laughs> that scene in the trailer where. Uh, He's left to die with a rattlesnake bite. All that's fantastic. Yeah. And then the Kill Bill conclusion. Wonderful dialogue about um, why the Superman um, quotes. About why Superman. Superman's his true identity. Whereas Clark Kent's his true disguise. There's really some fantastic. I really think number two is a lot better than number one. But um, I think that's why it sticks out and memorable to me. Because there's a conclusion to attach to it. And there's also nothing as cartoonish as the first one, really. She's not fighting a gang and, like, leaping and standing on the blade of a, a sword that a man is holding and balancing on it and defeating armies by herself. It's I think it's a little more grounded. I don't know if Josh agrees. Uh, yeah. Um, it's definitely less cartoony than volume one. Yeah. But again, you have to remember it was all one movie. So, so because... Ooh, that's interesting. Uh, is Kill Bill supposed to be the film that Mia Wallace is supposed to be in? Like, I know Josh was saying earlier uh, about how... Uh, about her character film, like that pilot... And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, how she filmed that pilot, and it was like a group of assassins, and she was going to play one. And I've always saw like a theory that Kill Bill is kind of that pilot, kind of, like, just taken further. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, I do agree. Yep. Uh, but, so... Because Kill Bill Volume One isn't realistic enough, that's what takes you out of it. No, yeah, but I don't want to. It doesn't make it an A to a C movie. It makes it mm. from an A plus to an A minus. That's the sort of scale oh, okay. I'm working on. It's very, yeah. very easy to get. It's Kill Bill is probably his most entertaining movie in terms of sheer popcorn film. And let me... it's just so easy to watch Kill Bill. It's just a nonstop action ride. But for me personally, if we're talking his films, it's definitely on the lower end because of the style of the movie he's made. Um, well, other than that, Kill Bill 2, for me, is, is great. It's, uh, it's definitely higher than Kill Bill 1. I do want to give props to the way he shot action in this film. Like, uh, 
in his other three films, there wasn't many action set pieces, and this one had tons of them. Uh, the scene where she's fighting Fox in like her house at the beginning, yeah. and the ending. Uh, yeah, like, and also that scene. Um, what did you think about the scene with the punch at the end? The, is it the five point? Hot, the five fingers death punch. Yeah, hard explosion pump. I mean, think about how ridiculous that is as a concept, but it's totally believable in that movie. Yeah, like, to me, it's like, yeah, like, they all wanted to know that technique, and he taught it to her. You know where sometimes people say, that's so goofy, but you kind of just buy into the idea of it, and you're like, oh. Uh, was it the ending people wanted after seeing, like, the other stuff? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's hard to say, but in a sense, it, because volume two is about her relationship with like the master who teaches her and how the one-eyed chick, as her counterpoint, has that rough relationship and he takes her eye out and he only teaches Beatrix Kiddo uh, the technique because she was, was she worthy? Like it's a five it's, point, yeah. Five point splitting can I can I tell you another criticism though I have here, MJ? No. Um, I I didn't think he did a good enough job to show why Bill was such. I mean, we know what Bill did through mm. proxy, but Bill was such a cool guy. I was always like, "Fuck! I wish he didn't die." He always had something cool to say. He seemed really gentle and conversation and really caring uh, of her the... there's this like dichotomy of he was always loving of her and like gentle with her but he'd have her killed by his group of assassins and every time he talked he was very intelligent and interesting and very loving of his daughter so it's like she had to kill bill but every time we saw bill david Carradine portrayed him so like incredibly um uh you could sympathize with him and you liked very him charming. Very charming. charming. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say about volume two is like um, we're onto volume two, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, is with the ending how he juxtaposes what your expectations are gonna be, considering that you've had this huge bloody rampage towards Bill, and then yes. like there's like a half hour scene with like them just talking with like their daughter and making a sandwich yeah. and stuff, and then, then that just was going really over cool. And, like, because obviously they meant meant a lot to each other. And they were in love yeah. and everything. So like yeah. a lot. And then at the end, when she, it's not this giant fight. It's literally just he swings a sword, she duck, uh, duck and dodges it, and then does the technique and he dies. And she's very upset about it. Like she's gone like this whole journey to kill him, but she still loves this person and yeah, just has to yeah. do it. And they have like this really sweet tender moment at the end where like he obviously respects and loves her still. Okay, so Josh, was there anything really like that in the first part? That's why I think no. like there's nothing close to that sort of emotional sort of no. anything deeper than just pure action sort of in the first part, I thought. I thought Volume 2 had that. It only gets has that heart and has that depth to it in Volume 2, mainly towards the yep. end. Um, I think that's uh, part again, of why I like it better, too. I've got a I question. Think Go ahead. Sorry, I've got to interrupt. <laughs> if, if you had to mix the two films together, like you've got all of the scenes 
but you've got to get two and a half hours. Like we'll say that's the Quentin Tarantino runtime of the film. I could do it. <clears throat> what would you include? What would you cut? I'd cut a lot of the. I'd cut the anime scene straight out. Yeah. As great as it is, that's gone. All the stuff that is unnecessary, that just it's world building stuff, which is yeah. fantastic and great. L has to go. If you're just telling a straightforward story of like a revenge story, she's got to kill these people to get to Bill. Very simple. You cut out the as another good scene with uh, Michael Parks where he plays the the ex pimp, the old mentor to Bill. Yeah, yeah, he's you don't fantastic. Because really all it is is like great scene, but don't need it. Yeah, uh, you don't need yep. the scene. A lot of the stuff at the start with like her at the hospital. Um, there's a bunch of stuff you could cut. That's just like. Well, you know, it's a video game with to too many bosses. Hours, I don't think it's that hard. Mm. Now, yeah. The only reason I it's a video because... game with too many bosses. You can cut a few bosses out, probably too. I mean, I don't think the film would be any worse for having four instead of five gang members, or three instead of four. You know, but. Because each one of them has their own backstory and needs a build-up and a fight. Like, you, know? you could have started the film somehow with her on the plane and she's ticking off the list, she Like, you could have scrapped Japan. Like, you'd have missed a big sequence, but yeah. there's probably certain ways you could have worked around and cut it. But no, I, I, I would have kept the sequence. <laughs> yeah, I but I mean, the like, Hattori, They make the Hattori Hanzo sword a very it. important plot point. And Tori Hanzo. You don't need it though. No, you don't. I think you, there's enough stuff you could cut out with. You could cut that whole thing where she gets the sword, and you still get the importance of it. Mm. Is mm. through the dialogue with Michael Madsen and Daryl Hannah. I don't think you'd need it. Um, you cut that. Look, get back to me, MJ. You've given me this question with no notice. But... <laughs> well, the one thing I did want to say was. Uh, Matt was saying how uh, she didn't have the tender moments in the first film. And I felt that was because she had lost everything and all she was about was about revenge. Yeah, yeah, I see that. The second Mm -hmm. film is the fact that she can get it back so there are those more tender emotional moments. Well, no, she did have tender... They gave her tender moments when she lost her entire in-law family and her husband at the chapel in El Paso. that sequence. Yeah. That, I mean, that was the closest thing to taking away everything while she's there, and I still felt more impact in the second part when she got well, her daughter. But one thing I'd say is there's the scene where she wakes up from the coma, and she just has, like, that breakdown, because it's all hit her, like... Well, she feels the belly's gone. Yeah. yeah. She, feels the, the, she feels her belly and feels the baby's not there. Um, what I was going to say before is, like, with Volume 2, because it obviously gets to tell a more cohesive story, I feel... Even though there are parts in Kill Bill Volume 1 that I think are just spectacular and probably my favorite parts of the entirety of Kill Bill, Kill Bill 2 is just a better movie by proxy just because of, like, it gets to tell the story mm. that it's actually about, that killing Bill. It's just a better, more... Uh, I hate to say more restrained, but I guess it is more restrained and less over-the-top, um, apart from the... Uh, the um, yeah. The training sequence uh, with Pai Mei, but uh, which is just so like crazy. Like he really did do a lot of great shots that were great homages to what like. I fucking love that training sequence. I fucking love it. 
Reminds me of Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> Oh, I wouldn't say that. It, it makes it, it makes me Karate feel more kids. like um, no, <laughs> no, no, no. It makes me feel more like um, the fucking rice uh, scene is like comedy gold and all that kind of stuff. She has to eat I that rice with her hand, just completely fucking mangled. Oh like god, it's funny. If you want to eat like a dog, yeah. Um, but you no, use I a like, fork I like, like a human. I think Kill Bill Volume Two is is better. Than Kill Bill Volume One, personally. Um, but hey, it's me. Okay. So, any other thoughts you've got about? Yeah, volume I. Two? Nope. Um. No, just you know, I could go ad nauseum with the Tarantinoisms, but they're all there. He indirectly revitalized some careers with David Carradine and Michael Parks, and yeah. a lot of them. Yeah, long... I love. Uh... <clears throat> I love David Carradine in this. I think it's one of the, be the best performances in any Tarantino film. I love him in this. I love... Uh, I didn't get to say it before, but um, Gogo in Volume 1 is <laughs> amazing. I love her from Battle Royale and getting to see her again in this. I was like, of course he'd put her in this film. Like, of course. Like, um, but she's great. Um, I think it's... Uma Thurman's quite good soundtrack for both is again good it's never bad with a tangent film um here's a hot take i think the dialogue in kill bill one and two is not the best is it there's a lot of times where it doesn't work and it comes across too operatic and i get that that's what he's trying to go for in a more mm. over the top thing but like it felt like he was in a lot of times, not every time, there's obviously some great dialogue in there, but like, there's a lot of times where I started to think, this guy's too far up his own ass and too, like, in love with his own words. Yeah. Like, <clears throat> see, I could probably understand where you're coming from. Like, what I'll do, which is a little late for the show, is I'll check out Kill Bill Volume 2 tomorrow. Because being able to watch them back to back will be. Well, I want to see what it's like because I haven't seen Volume 2 in a while. I just remember seeing like the ending and be like, oh, okay. Uh, whilst Volume 1 is just shorter, straight to the point, it like rips straight through it. Uh, so I'll be curious to see how Volume 2 shapes up tomorrow. But did you have any closing thoughts on Volume 2? Because we're going to probably move on to... Thank God. Death proof. I mean, how long is this show going for? They got to do volume two of the show. <laughs> it's like <clears throat> volume two. So on to. Nah, I've got nothing else to say. Death proof. Then I think we've lost Matt somewhere. He's gone all radio silent. Let me see. Oh my fucking phone's dead. He's had enough. Death Proof, uh, easily the weakest Tarantino film, in my opinion. Not as bad as some people said it was, but not the best. And this is definitely where he, uh, where Tarantino came crashing down to earth, because this was a massive failure, uh, critically and financially. <laughs> so... Yeah, this really was a bit of a wake-up call for him that he can't get away with doing anything. Um, I think Kurt Russell is fantastic 
in this. Absolutely fantastic. I think some of the dialogue is really good. I think, again, some of it is super overindulgent and super up his own ass. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think the, the, this film is very disjointed that it's a story of two halves. So... Uh, oh, we must be talking about Death Proof. Half, I'm back. Of course. Um, yeah. I think the first <laughs> half is actually the better half. In my opinion. I think that might be a, a minority opinion. But um, I enjoy the first half as slow moving as it is. And I think it ends fantastically with that great like explosion of like the cars crashing. And I think the car seat, the car chase car chases in the second half are excellent and the best part of the movie but as a whole the first half of me works better than the second half because you get that build up and payoff and then you have to go through a whole other like hour of build up again and it's like fuck's sake and I just don't want to hear them I know, I know. going on and on I'm like I don't want to hear this again like um, but again great performance by Kurt Russell um, some good songs in the soundtrack. Great car chase, great car crash. Um, but I haven't got much more to say on it. I think this was a giant wake-up call for him, and I said, like I said, overindulgent. Some of the dialogue was on the nose and too far up his own ass. And it's proof that he's not perfect. Um, I think it's an okay film. It's not terrible, and it's easily his worst film. Matt, any thoughts? Yeah, you guys can hear me here? Yeah, crack on. Okay, so, yeah, I agree with uh, Josh wholeheartedly. Uh, I don't think it's a hot take to say this is by far his uh, least impressive film. Um, I think so much so that Death Proof needed to happen for us to have the sort of slight resurgence that we have afterwards, which we'll get into. I think this is the low, if the if it was an XY graph of his career, I think this is the dip. Um, and I think uh, I think other people knew it reading the script for this. I just want to read you a little fact here. They tried to cast <laughs> yeah, Travolta. It down. Yeah, so John Travolta, Willem Dafoe, John Malkovich, Mickey Rourke, Ron Perlman, Bruce Willis, Cal Penn, and Sylvester Stallone all turned down this role before they went to... Uh, before, or at least turn down uh, an opportunity to be in this movie. So I don't know if that's maybe... Yeah, they I all claim that Cal they had prior engagements. Quote-unquote prior yeah, engagements. Cal was meant to be... Cal Penn was meant to be one of the other dudes. Like the Eli Roth crew sure, kind of dickheads. Sure, sure. They all, they all declined to be I, in a Tarantino film. I think that says more than just prior engagement. I think Mickey Tarant Rourke, at that point yeah. in his career, turned down anything... That was pre-wrestler. <laughs> I know. Um, I just, I, I, I don't really have much to say about this one. I think we can make the podcast a little faster unless yeah. MJ does. Um, uh, like, cool. I've watched this film once, says it all. Uh, I've got nothing about it. Like, did you boys you... watch this as part of the Grindhouse? Did it make a difference for yeah, you? Like, yeah, like, no, like, no, in Australia, really. it didn't get released. It didn't get released as... Uh, Grindhouse, we both, we got a release of Planet Terror and 
um, Death Proof. So I saw the ex- the first time I ever saw Death Proof was part of the ex- is the extended one, which is about two and a bit hours long. So it's longer than what Jesus the Christ. I eventually Fuck. got the Grindhouse <laughs> Blu-ray and I bought it and I watched it as a part of Grindhouse and the stuff that's been cut and shorter. Makes um, it worse or better? I can't say which I can't say. It's been too long since I watched it. I've ironically watched Death Proof more than some of his other films just because I'm fascinated by like what he was like doing watching wrong a car accident literally up. and figuratively <laughs> literally 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 uh, and figuratively yeah. watching a car accident I mean I don't I don't I no one was asking it. like this is a point in this this was the absolute pinnacle of I think him getting uh, so self-referential in his inspirations i don't think anyone was impressed with the grindhouse aesthetic um which is really you have to buy into 100 percent to enjoy death proof and well, i think he the just, whole grindhouse. yeah he just you know he and rodriguez like over uh they just get so excited talking to each other but, yeah they just overestimated like how much other people would like indulge them in this bullshit like rodriguez didn't actually grow up as a an exploitation grindhouse movie watcher like it's all tarantino getting him into it post and um the best part of the entire grindhouse experience when you watch the actual grindhouse as a whole is the trailers yeah like the machete yep, trailer the best one is the one that edgar wright did uh don't yeah which is fucking outstanding um because they feel like more like i'd rather watch don't than either planet terror or uh, death proof like to me that felt like more of like a british horror film from that period um machete you know what's funny? as well we obviously got machete yeah machete yeah because these just there's parts of planet terror that uh, felt more grindhousey, but at the same time there were things that would happen in that film that wouldn't happen in exploitation films like uh, machine gun leg and like some of the special effects and i think I mean, if these guys is- had stripped down and put themselves under the actual restrictions of what it would be like to make an exploitation film. Yeah. This experiment could have worked because if you had a smaller budget with no stars, maybe just like one older star, like yeah. Kurt Russell, fine, or Mickey Rourke in the lead. Sure, but like if they had a really low budget, like if they gave themselves like half a million dollars each, so you give yourself a bit more of a budget than what the exploitation got. And you just like go to town, and then if you have got a budget of one to two million dollars, you can risk that because I think the budget for Grindhouse All Up was what like thirty to forty million or something. It's like no wonder why it failed because there aren't that many exploitation movie fans. Like they're not going to go. Well, watch that's what shit. I said. Like, no one's asking for this aesthetic. I appreciate it was made, I guess. But the one thing I always think about when I think I feel bad for Kurt Russell. <laughs> I feel like well, he was he, so he good missed... in this film. I thought I know he's great. He he's fantastic. Great. But I, I, he's great in this film. In Absolutely fantastic. Shows. He's one of the few guys that props it up. I think. But I feel bad yeah. that he got one of the weakest films for him to be yeah. participating. And that's just a weird feeling I have when I see it. It's like poor Kurt Russell. He had to be attached <laughs> to, you know. Uh, um, you got it. Made I had a few. Yeah, before we move on, a few points here. Zoe Bell, I guess, was cast in this. She was the stunt woman for Uma Thurman yeah. and Kill Bill, and Quentin loved her and thought she deserved a leading role. And then the only other thing I found interesting is they, in an effort to make it have that aesthetic, that grindhouse drive-in theater film aesthetic, they 
roughed up the film. They purposely Tarantino intentionally did. Yeah, they intentionally damaged the film to achieve that effect, which I thought was pretty cool. Rodriguez didn't though. Rodriguez shot digitally and uh, <laughs> did it all in post because he's a fucking hack. Um, <laughs> but Tarantino at least give the props that he tried to do it for real. And I'll say Mary I, he did do it for real. cheerleader uniform. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh I love uh, Jungle Julia. She's fantastic. Uh, who else? The women, the girls in this sh- pretty good. Um, I just don't want to hear them speak for two and a half fucking hours. Jeez. Uh, um, yeah, the car chase and stuff. What was I going to say? I fucking forgot the last point. Shall we move Doesn't on to Inglorious? An... Yeah, Inglorious. Uh... Sure, I don't care about death proof. Fuck it. <laughs> now we're on to a good one again. Like, after the fucking dip, that was death proof. <laughs> uh, what, what did we all think of Inglorious Bastards before? Anyone, feel free to take the floor. I love uh, Inglorious Bastards. I think it's his second best film. So do I. Very close <laughs> thing to. To Pulp Fiction. I, mean, I don't want to get. Movie. Oh, I love this movie. I love it. I don't. I don't know uh, if we're giving away our rankings yeah. yet, Josh. But I. I will admit it's number two already. Um, yeah, go it's ahead. Number two. Definitely my number two. Uh, it's a film that I've grown to appreciate more and more each time I watch it as well. Um, I'd say it has, even though I love it a, a lot and consider it his second best film. I think it's got a lot of similar problems to Kill Bill and that it's a great collection of scenes and sequences. Mm. And I don't know if the film as a whole works and maybe that's not why it's as great as Pulp Fiction for me. But like there are sequences in this film that are as good as anything he's ever done. Uh, I'm talking about the chapter one, that entire chapter one. That is my favorite scene of his entire repertoire. My favorite scene is the one in chapter f- uh, four, where in the the tavern, under in the underground. Tavern, oh yeah, oh yeah. Which is like a which... 20, 30 minute scene, and yep. it's just brilliant. And I think it's absolutely perfect. Like that block is perfect, and the sequence that I've ended up going back to, and and I think is nearly as good as anything he's ever done and and something i didn't love the first time i saw it i didn't dislike it i just i've grown to appreciate it more is the scene in the cafe where landa is with um uh, melanie lorenz character got a name oh yeah Shana, and they're yeah and um not and ordering the strudel and like all the and it's like this yeah. is just like as good as anything he's ever done um Ironically, like the stuff with the bastards is almost like the the weakest part of the film. The more I watch it, uh, that's initially what, why you I went can in cut. You can cut like, them out of the I movie. I want man on a mission ship. <laughs> you could almost like I went in. I went into this wanting like the man on a mission thing, and he didn't deliver that at all. It was more like this great espionage spy thriller set in World War Two. It was um, all these orbiting characters I, I and storylines. Yeah. I, I just absolutely love it, and I think Christoph Waltz gives maybe the best performance in any Tarantino film. Like, if he is not that, phenomenal. Yeah. Um, I'm 
fascinated by this film. I could talk about it like I could have done this entire show just talking about this yeah. movie because I think it's terrific and I think it's yeah the second best film. I'll get into more reasons why later maybe, but I'll let you guys have your little take on it now. I'm just gonna quickly chime in on the production aspect again. This film and the rest of them from here on out, uh, the cinematography seems to be more together. Uh, I'm not yeah. sure if he used the same cinematographer for oh, this. Oh, wait. And I watched... Just, sorry to interject real quickly. Yeah. Just super quick. And that's what I was going to say on Death Proof. Was Death Proof was the only film where he was the cinematographer. Oh, okay. And thank God. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, that explains a lot. Yes. Uh, because... because Robert Richardson... He, Robert Richardson came on from the Kill Bill 1, 2, mm. and then Inglorious Bastards on. He's had Robert Richardson. See... Because but Death Proof is the lone one that Tarantino was cinematographer on. Wow, thank God! I can't remember who was the cinematographer he had on. That Dogs, was the Pulp thing I noticed because when I watched <laughs> Kill Bill Volume One, it's like this looks like uh, Inglorious Django and Hateful Eight, like some of the lighting, yeah, the aesthetics, yeah, and it's like I was like, yeah. oh, he's one okay. of the best. He's one of the best cinematographers like in the world. But yeah. because it's been so long since I saw Kill Bill. I never put it together, but his latest stretch of films, I wasn't sure if it's because they aren't in the same time period, but they're older films, if that makes sense, like set in the past, obviously. Uh, yeah. But they've period. got like older fashioned lighting, like it just looks brilliant. Mm -hmm. It looks very well done. And that's where I noticed like his production values keep rising obviously with time to go back to Reservoir Dogs and see how it's gone up and his career because he gets given more money to go fucking blow out uh, it's great and I think Inglorious looked really great especially that well, he had to, he had underground to scene part this time. do you think his think career was really well. on a knife's edge was that how he bad? said it was wow he said it was damn is that he said, him? I knew I had to like come out with like the big guns this time because if I come out with another flop, like my career could be done. He had to come out like Donnie with the baseball bat needed to hit a home run. <laughs> yeah. Do you know who was meant to play that role? Uh, Donnie Donowitz? It was meant to be Adam Sandler. I could see that. Now that Christ. you say it. Yeah, I think I think he would have been really good. Yeah. Like, but now that you say it, like... Conflict. Do you reckon he kicks himself about that? I think so. Like, to be in a good film, because he's in a lot of shit and he gets paid, but I mean... Because I think he has scheduling conflicts with funny people. <laughs> it's it's a weird term how people's careers go. That was go. meant to be him. Uh, but... And then Eli Roth literally just got plugged in because, like, he had no one else. Like, yeah, <laughs> Are you like, sure, Josh, it wasn't uh, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, or... That's my sister, whatever no, it's called. I think it was, or I think it was I'm funny really going to haggle over Adam Sandler films. I was joking. They're all <laughs> ridiculous. Um, can I let me let me take my two cents on this? So, I, this this is an incredible film. This film has my favorite scene of any Tarantino movie. Period, and that's saying a lot because he's really a director of scenes, isn't he? Um, uh, and I'll tell you why. It's this one. It's the milk interrogation scene 
in chapter one. It's my favorite scene of his period. And it's because he finally, in my opinion, was touching on something that I always felt he was incapable of doing. For his entire career, Tarantino, I think I think you guys can agree, has always been either consciously and intentionally or subconsciously and unintentionally willing to portray emotion on screen that is other than lust or vengeance or rage. Um, he really hasn't in too many moments in his movies really gotten into something deeper emotionally. And that scene where Christoph Waltz, the Jew hunter, comes into that French farmhouse and he's forcing a man who's trying to literally hide a a family of friends and co-workers and local neighbors who happen to be Jewish from this man and realizing that this man who is hunting them is much smarter than he is, has been doing that job much longer and is way better at it than he was aware of, and that he's well aware of it and he's giving him an opportunity to save his own life in and the lives of his daughters in order to give up these. I just thought that that scene is so incredible and the overall movie i mean casting actors that are bi tri and even quad lingual having like like the, the three quarters of the movie is subtitled that's something that yeah. if you said it objectively would be something that wouldn't sound too appealing to most and people but it's it was a massive bad. hit too it was a yeah massive it was hit his highest grossing movie, movie. Like... i mean uh, until the... uh Django. <laughs> until Django. But Django in a lot of ways was propelled by this movie, Josh. Hmm. This this was sort of yeah, like I mean, this a is, this was sort of a pulp fiction. This, this is sort of a mini pulp fiction because it really was a it was the steam off of this movie propelled the next 3, I think. But overall, I think I this movie is incredible. Um it's just incredible. Christoph Waltz. I mean, again, getting back to the Tarantinoisms it indirectly revitalized and elevated the career of this crew in it. Uh, Christoph Waltz maybe is the best example of this out of all of his movies. Um, that guy is in one of the best talents of the last 20 years, I think. Christoph Waltz. And he's getting um, that Hollywood fuck money now. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, fuck he gets money. into Spectre and all these other movies now. And it's, you know, sort of oh, being God. watered down, but... Well, um, this this movie is incredible, man. He discovered, I, we, uh, he, he kind of uh, put Michael Fassbender up into like this is before he became famous as well. Yeah, yeah, you can put him in there. This. I mean, there must Daniel be Brill, like Till Schweiger <laughs> of the top. I mean, Leah Sadu is this one of the girls in like the the daughters in the first scene, and she's just yeah. there. She hasn't got even got a line of dialogue, and she's like a big famous actress now. So like. That has a, an eye for talent. Yeah. See, like I just finished. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, uh, going back to that first scene, we always say about how Quentin always lets his scenes breathe. He doesn't yes. chop, chop, chop. Uh, he gives the actor the frame, go for it, and the camera will follow him as they go for it. They'll inspect the room, and they'll sit down, and they'll take his gloves off and just place them down it's not rushed it it feels like the guy is in command of the scene he doesn't have to hit his marks here or that he's just like 
now I'm going to talk to you. Can you talk French or German? And he's like saying, what can you talk in? And it, it's just very patient and it helps build and it helps the actor give a performance. And I'd love to see how many takes they had to take. Uh, because it was the it was the first time that I ever was feeling something emotionally from the screen hmm. that that I wasn't being told to only because I wasn't being told to feel that way. It like it really speaks for itself the the, the emotion on that scene. I'd, uh, I'd say because uh, you were talking about like the uh, the first scene of like <clears throat> how much you, you know you obviously think it's the best thing he's ever done. Yeah. Um, Let's say, like, this film got robbed for best original screenplay at the Oscars. It went to Mark Boll for uh, Hurt Locker. But, um... Hurt Locker got as great so as much script... fucking stuff. Yeah, I, don't... I mean, Hurt Locker is really great. But, um... Yeah, it should have got everything. One original screenplay for this. But, um, I think this is Tarantino's best directed film. I think mm. his direction is as good as it's ever been. I'd say it's better than his direction in Pulp Fiction. As weird as that face thing. Now, yeah. would you say it's direction, or do you think it's the actors, like... No, I just think it's, taking like, it's it. him. I think how he... Changed. Oh, let's not... No, no, I don't think make it's him, everything. It's the best... I think it's how... It, yeah, the actors are a big he, part yeah, of it, too, showed, I think he showed a lot of restraint. Mm. And I think he mm. showed a lot of thought into, like, how he was going to shoot certain sequences. You look at how he shot that first scene in that in that little like hut. Mm. You think about how yeah. he shot the scene in the um, in the cafe or in the the tavern or anything. Like apart from like the big explosion of violence at the very end, it is quite restrained. I thought um, <laughs> the end is insane. I mean, uh, yeah, we have the, to talk about that. The, the baseball bat to the head was one of the most impactful things. Oh. In any of his films, in my opinion, you feel every shot. In my, that's how I felt. Like what? it's brutal. But um, no, I just think he's. I think everything that he did, from how he instructed the actors to the thought that he put into what shots he was going to use. Again, this is the last movie that Sally Menke edited for him. Mm. I think it's one of his most tightly edited pieces. I don't think there's much baggage, if any, in this. Can I ask you guys um, something? Go ahead. Do you think that this was so good partly because he had such a long time to make it and write it and prepare I for think, it? I mean, remember we I said this was the, supposed to come out when Kill Bill came out. Yeah, well, the first volume I know he wrote back in 1998. Yeah. I mean, he's been working on it for months. 10 years. I'd say it's an it was... Uh, a whole bunch of factors coming together, like yeah. the fact that he had time to write different things. Because he, I know he scrapped everything after the first two volumes. Yeah. First two volumes he wrote '98. Everything else he wrote after Death Proof, because he had to change the story. Um, I, but also coming off of the failure of Death Proof, I think the guy just had to like. I mean, he put himself under a lot of time pressure. Where, like. He could have. He said, like, he could have let this film happen uh, six months later, a year later. But like, he was like, "No, I'm going to do this movie in a month and a half. We're going to start shooting over in Europe, and we're going to have uh, six weeks to shoot it." I think it was like five or six weeks. He said, and then he goes, and he, he put all this time constraint on himself. Yeah. Like, no, I'm going to get this shit done. Like, I'm not going to just like, oh well, if this doesn't like, 
if we don't shoot all of this today, we'll just do it tomorrow, and we'll just, like, let Fat start marbling. He was just like, nah, I'm going to, like, be on my game for this one. <laughs> Six weeks. Shows, and I think... Six weeks is incredible. Jesus. To shoot the amount of stuff that he did, like, I'm pretty sure it was, like, a quick shoot for him. He was just like, oh, I'm going to strap down and get this shit done. I so, think six weeks think is phenomenal. It's incredible. And that's why like a lot of people had to drop out. Like Adam Sandler couldn't do it. Mm. Um, I know Simon Pegg was meant to play the Michael Fassbender role. He couldn't do it. Thank God. Uh, there's another couple of people. Um, yeah, that had to drop out just because he was like, look, if you that wanted to apparently do it, that said yes, but like said like I can't do it at this time. He's like, well, sorry, <laughs> See I'm doing ya. it now. <laughs> well. Two things I just want to mention before we have closing thoughts. Uh, it's wild to think, outside of the portrayal of Hitler and maybe his little Nazi filmmaking fanboy, the Germans are portrayed as quite. I mean, Goebbels. Yeah, realistic. Like they're not pantomime kind of villainy. No. Uh, no. Compared yeah, to like really the heroes, well. like the heroes are almost. Uh, over top they're sometimes. more brutal they're more yeah. brutal than what most usually a nazi yeah. is portrayed as yeah uh, and the thought... nazi in the tavern scene i think is underrated in this movie. it mm. no i would put that in one of the top 10 scenes he's ever done as well like i okay, think right. it's just very interesting to see how he approached that uh and even you've got Mike Myers, have you, as, like, the Brit guy? <laughs> That's a weird That's one. That's, like, the one scene which is, like, st sticks out a little bit. But... You... It's like, what? <laughs> Why is Mike Myers so mean this? But the other thing I was going to say, <laughs> like, do you ever have it where certain films or something just strike a chord of you and you can describe the feeling? And in Glorious Bastards, mm. I don't drink it often, and I can't remember why I always get this feeling. But I always think it's like drinking warm milk. It's nice, relaxing, entertaining. It's just Not that feeling. After Glorious Bastards. <laughs> uh, it's just incredible. Uh, really enjoying yeah. Glorious Bastards. Do you guys have any closing points, thoughts for it before we move on? Yeah, it's his best work since Pulp Fiction. Uh, and it's... Yeah. It was really refresh. It felt like really purposeful filmmaking from him again, and it was uh, mm -hmm. perfectly cast, well acted, incredible dialogue. And I, like I said, I think that's my favorite scene of his, and I think uh, it deserves to be in the conversation for one of the most powerful scenes in cinema. It's just incredible movie overall. Yeah, and I think it's yeah, I agree. It's his best film since. Pulp Fiction, I don't think any of the films post this have equaled it either. Um, it would have been interesting to see what he would have done with it in the 90s, because originally he wanted to have, apparently, this is a rumor, he wanted to have Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, <laughs> Bruce Willis. Jesus Just Christ. That's what would have been the cast in the, in the 90s if he'd made it then. So he's basically making the Expendables. Crew, Expendables, oh yeah. Would have been interesting to have Arnie in the Till Schweiger role. Like... Or Stallone as the Donnie Donowitz, or Bruce Willis as Aldo Rain. You know I mean? like, but you get what I'm, weird, but... That's what elevates Quentin for me because it sounds ridiculous, but you think, but he could, could put work. it off, couldn't he? Like you, you say yeah. it, like... like the idea of Adam Sandler doing something great and like being this badass Jew with a baseball bat. I'm mean, like. 
Okay, I could. <laughs> I would rather have seen that actually than Eli Roth. Yeah, because... like sometimes when you mention it, it's like that actually makes sense. Like you could see it as like, hmm. Yeah. Uh, but there's she... a whole sequence that never made it into the film too that has like Donnie's backstory of like growing up in Brooklyn or whatever. Um, I don't want to leave on a negative note. Mm-hmm. Uh, risking leaving on a negative <laughs> note, I do think the end of that movie with the ink. It does border on cartoonish violence again at the end of it. And I do think overall it does tip oh, the scales a little to, a, like, it, I think it uh, detracts from the rest of the movie, I think. I think I wish it was a little less um I do love Tarant- her, that he just was like, fuck it, I'm going to rewrite history. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's I cool. Shit. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. That though I love when she turns around and shoots him in the cinema room. Like fuck you, I'm not gonna date you. Remember that in the projector room. Yeah. But then the best part. And is then he like, and then he gets up. Like, has, yeah. He has yeah. like sympathy for him. He's like oh. And then he kills. Because from his point of view, I love this. I've sympathized with him because from his point of view, he's been bending over backwards oh. trying to get her, and, and it's like you know what, fuck you. That doesn't dead. mean that he should get him. <laughs> no, no, I know, I know. <laughs> All right. Let's move on. Just to... because you put in a lot of effort, like he deserves it. <laughs> no, but he shouldn't be shot. But anyway, whatever. Direct yeah. all your direct all your feminist hate mail to Matt. <laughs> on to uh, Django. Let's hope he doesn't get any racist hate mail for this one. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> what do we think of Django, lads? Um, go, go ahead, Josh. Go ahead. Go, ahead. go ahead, Josh. Um, all right. I read the script for this before I actually saw the film. Hmm. So that was an interesting experience. I had the opportunity to read it, and I thought I've never, uh, I've never had this experience. So I'm like, let's let's do this with Tarantino because he always goes on about how it's like a book or a novel or some shit. He's so far up his own ass, but um. <laughs> So I was like, let's do this. Like, I'll give it a read. And I preferred the script to the film. So it an int- I have a different ex- experience to most people with it. I enjoyed Django Unchained. I think it's a bit long. I... And while I enjoy it, and I think it's better than stuff like, say, Death Proof, for instance, I'd even say it's better than the Kill Bill movies... But I find myself revisiting this one the least of anything he's actually ever made. I've watched Death Proof more than I've watched Django. And I really enjoyed Django the first time I saw it. I, just, I, I think I've only ever seen it all the way through two or three times. I just don't go back and I don't find it that interesting beyond like a few sequences. I do think everyone in this movie is great. Um, in particular, Leo Jackson and Christoph Waltz. I would have loved to have seen Michael K. Williams play Django. He wanted to play Django. I'm glad Will Smith didn't fucking get it, because fuck him. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't have that much to say on it. I think it's really well shot. I think it's a really good movie. I just, again, I don't I, I don't find it that terribly interesting to talk about or, or watch over and over again like some of his other stuff. I and I don't know why. I can't tell you why. <laughs> yeah. So overall, I think it's... Uh, overall, I think it's as enjoyable of a film as any... Just as a simple viewing experience popcorn movie, it's as enjoyable as any of the other movies he's ever released. Um, 
I think for me, the film peaks in the in the third act, actually, which is actually kind of rare for some of his other efforts. I, f- I feel like, I feel like the, uh, but that's sort of the blood. I'm actually talking pre bloodbath where, um, deals are being done in the, what do they call the house in that movie? Yeah. That's the strongest. Yeah. The yeah. candy plantation. Or the candy, candy plantation household during dinner. I felt that was very strong, but yeah, that was, that for, was the best. Scene. Yeah. For me, tonally though, this is the first issue where I started to have problems with one of the major Tarantino-isms that I said usually carries me the most through, which is the black humor aspect. And I'll, I'll explain. The, the black He's, humor? What are you, a racist? Like, uh, dark humor. Oh, you shouldn't have called me out on that <laughs> oh, phrasing. No. How dare... Why are you... Why would you do that? <laughs> the dark humor... The dark humor... Uh, the subversive Uh-oh. dark humor thing. Um... It does. Do it's very tonally. In your house, <laughs> I have a. I have a panic room. Uh, uh, don't talk my, a podcast <laughs> panic room. Do you have a chopper um, motorcycle? Yeah, Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. Um, yeah, that dark subversive humor. That's so. It's so touch tone Tarantino, but in this one, it's it's tonally not consistent. Why At is the it start, dark? Because he's black. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is it has a lot to do with why it be, them being black i mean tonally at the start to, tonally at the start the whole slavery issue in this movie is dealt with right and on the start there's a there's some comedic aspects to it he comes at it from a comedic side with the horse falling on the slave slavery. deliverer right I mean, but anything, then in later uh, in later scenes in later scenes in later scenes in late in later scenes he's he's using he's the same slavery as sort of as it should be treated really is like a serious thing where the guy is up the tree or she's being brought out of the sweat box but in other scenes there's there's his his subversive humor is used inconsistently on the same topic in this movie so that i found that to be a problem uh the acting in this movie from um uh, Leo is awesome. I thought Christoph Waltz was much less impressive in this than he was, obviously, in Inglorious, but he didn't have as much to do, and the character was way less interesting. Though, you know, I it had, his... had nothing to do and was disappointing because, like, it, actually, it's a whole sequence that got left on, didn't even get filmed, was uh, Kerry Washington. She had nothing to do in this film, she was just there. Just there to be rescued, which is unusual. Usually, the the wife, the wife, wife. Jamie Foxx's wife. Yeah, yeah. It's like usually he writes really strong female characters, and this in this one, she's just in this. Don't get me wrong. In the script, there's a whole sequence that like fleshes her out more that just didn't get filmed. Hmm. But as presented in the film itself, I think she's just there. Like, she's just there to be rescued. It's not much else to her than that. I saw this movie as as Kill Bill with a different mask on, um, with not as much Uh um, a black mask. (laughs) Jesus Christ, man! (laughs) Settle down. Um, I don't know. It's a revenge flick. It's a revenge flick, Uh, and you know, it's it's much more grounded in reality than Kill Bill was. I thought it's entertaining, but I didn't find it 
incredibly enjoyable towards the end when you start to get into the politics of Candyland, and then um, uh, the the plot started to turn, and their their plans were dashed, and then there was the that Tarantinoism of the the subversive plot direction doing a U turn at the end. I thought was really cool. So overall, um, I'm not a racist, and I like this movie. It's just not as good as Inglorious Bastards. Says every says every racist. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Django is fine film. It's entertaining. Not as much fun as Inglorious Bastards. Uh, you guys pretty much covered it all. Uh, the best scene is obviously the fuckers, the early Ku Klux Klan with the fucking. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, I don't know what it is, but like the music score they use and the fact they can't see through the fucking. <laughs> uh, that's a hilarious scene. <laughs> Jonah Hill, right? Yeah. And then they're like, I'm fucking going home. I'm I, love, uh, I love Don Johnson in this too. Man. I, I just love Don Johnson, period, in anything. But I really love him in this. Uh, but yeah, it's not... It's good film. I just think it's in the shadow of Inglorious. And it's... It's for me, it's the dip between two peaks like you've got two solid films well great films for me either side of it and i find them stronger we're in the minority we're in the minority though because a lot of people love django compared to hateful eight and i think hateful eight is way better than yeah like hateful eight is they're completely different but they're completely different but let's get into it shall we move on to hateful eight yeah yeah um, uh, we've already okay. done this, so that's the end of the show. Because me and Josh have done a review for Hateful Eight, so yeah, sell I was going to say like, funny what we have to say. Like, I haven't got much more to add than what I've already said. Like, I've watched another couple of times since, for whatever reason, Australian Netflix doesn't have the fucking four-part miniseries version of this that huh? the rest of the fucking world have. So fuck you. What you mean? I want to watch it. Well, I don't have that. What are you talking about? In, on Netflix, they've released um, Tarantino's extended it into so it's like a four-part miniseries version of the Hateful Eight. What the fuck? I just watched it on Netflix yesterday. In Australia, it's, and it's you'll get different content, Matt. Like, yeah, but what yeah. what was four parts about it? Because it was the first time I'd seen it. Like, I think they split it into four episodes. Oh, oh, like into chapters? No, just four episodes. Oh, I just watched. I watched it on Netflix yesterday here in Canada. You can and watch. You can one... watch it as a movie. No, you can watch it as the movie on Netflix. But it, there's also another version on Netflix at the moment, oh. which is the full part. Oh, I didn't what see that. Did with the Godfather somewhere where they released that or uh, did that the first like... two parts? They'd, someone did huh. the Godfather and edited it together in chronological order from the first two parts. Someone's done that. Wow. <laughs> but um. Yeah, Hateful Eight. Like it's, I prefer it much more to Django. I I love it. I we discussed on the show. Uh, my idea was if you cut the first two chapters, which introduce all like Kurt Russell, Sam Jackson, and Daisy Domingue and Morton Gogg's character, the film would actually be stronger and closer to the intent that he wants of it being a uh, mystery. Because if you just get dropped straight in where these characters show up to this place, and then we meet all the same, the characters at once, 
and if you watch the film, you still pick, you still have dialogue that references stuff that we learn in chapters one and two. So you're losing nothing apart from just some great scenes. So I think the film would be stronger, in my opinion, if those first two chapters didn't exist, and it was just like a ninety-minute to two-hour movie where it just starts off with them showing up at the place. But other than that, I love it, and I love those first two chapters. I just think the film would be strong without them. And yeah, so this, uh, like I said, with Kill Bill, where there's some like quotable lines, this film's got some, and I fucking love it. It's like Joe Gage. <laughs> He's just fucking like where the fucking redneck cop sheriff or whatever. He's so obsessed that it's Joe Gage. And he's like, I told you it was Joe Gage. <laughs> like, I know the character that Matt said off air, that was his, his the character he relates to the most in this film is the Bruce Dern character, of course. <laughs> Jesus fuck. Yeah, that's me. That's me, man. Go on. Go on, Matt. We haven't really heard your <laughs> thoughts on it, but you've heard ours, so... Yeah, uh, hey, fully. Except uh, that, didn't that video get imp- taken down? <laughs> isn't it? No, I I listened to it. It's on, oh. or is it up? Yeah, it's I listened still to it. It's still I there. Found it. I thought MJ said it. it was it was gone. You guys oh, actually did like a mini Tarantino retrospective in that one, but at the very end. Oh, did we? Um, <laughs> I I love Hateful Eight. I love Hateful Eight, but. Uh, <laughs> I think it's I think it's a way better uh, it's an improvement on uh, Django. Um, I see a lot of similarities in this movie to Reservoir Dogs in the setting aspect. Um, and the really small this I see this movie as a play. To be mm. honest, this is this is a play, mm. um, but it is fantastically told and. Uh, it's it's back to form for him again. I, I do agree with MJ that Django was between two peaks of Inglorious and this yep. because he is at the top of his game with tense narrative driven um, dialogue or di- uh, dialogue driven narrative. Uh, I think that it is probably in my top four for him, and I'll tell you where it is on the list. Um, oh. Which is was it was oh, sneaky. Baby. What's that? Save that list. I will. I will. But Don't it's in my top it. four, and um. So we know what fucking one, two, and four is. You do. Hey, there's another. Sorry, man. There's it was. It was only a matter of time. Uh, I think that the U-turns in this one are awesome. The blowjob scene for me, my when that scene oh. came up, my jaw was on the fucking floor. Oh. <laughs> I couldn't I like, believe what, what I was seeing. <laughs> I could not see. I could not believe what I was seeing. There was a naked man in the snow giving Samuel L. Jackson a blowjob. I'm like, what is going on? And when the blood started being puked out, when the blood was starting to be puked out from the poison stew or coffee, like that was when it really kicked into gear for me. I think the last two thirds of the movie are the the best part. I was waiting for uh, Sam Jackson in that uh, blowjob scene to say, "Bring out the gimp." <laughs> That was the gimp. You know how all the characters are related That's from movies? Gimp. That's the gimp's great, 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 great grandfather. <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, yeah, oh, well, um, just an awesome the movie. That, um, Tim Ross character is related to the Michael Fassbender character in Glorious Bastards. In this one. Mm-hmm. 
Oh. There you go. So, yeah, I loved it. I love this movie. I I think it's really cool. Um, Really well told. Uh, I was listening to how you guys said you'd prefer it was re-edited so that you eliminated the first act of Mm -hmm. the traveling and the introductions. I agree with that. I think if if, uh, that first scene where he's done tying up the horses and coming into the lodge and then eyeballing everyone around the lodge... um, or whatever you whatever you call it the, the whatever you call that lodge was Minnie's um, haberdashery. Ab- yeah, Minnie's haberdashery. When he opens that door, closes it, and looks around the room like uh, almost like Clue, the movie Clue. That's mm. when the movie should have started, and we would have been guessing not about who the helpers of the gang are, but who he is and who Kurt Russell yeah, who is. Everyone is. <laughs> who everyone is. It would have been awesome. Um, also, get rid of the opening credits of the people's names. Because yeah. I remember complaining about oh, yeah, Channing Tatum. Because yeah. I was waiting for the fucker to pop up. I was like, easy. I do love the. Um, I do love that opening credits, though, just for the music the and the imagery. Shot. Yeah. I, yeah, I just love it. I think my one of my favorite parts of this film, and I think we discussed it in that review, was. The, the music, the, uh, the score by Ennio Morricone made it film. Uh, some of it's used from the thing, and then some of it is original stuff, mm. I think. Uh, there is unused stuff in the thing, though. But um, it makes it feel like the most a Tarantino film has gotten towards a horror film. There's like this overbearing sense of dread to the whole thing. Mm. Like, you know, everything's yeah. going to go to hell. You just don't know when, and you don't know how. But yeah, it feels to me more in tone of a horror movie than a western, which I love. Um, obviously, it's got was... to do with, like there's elements of like um, the great silence to it, the Kobuchi western, or uh, that for for whatever reason I don't know why, but that blowjob scene <laughs> always gave me thoughts of like Russia blood. This is no, just like. Uh, Thoughts uh, of switching teams. And uh, no, yeah, mountain top um, retreat. Uh, so, yeah, like, so there you have it. No, I'm like, a racist, moderate. and you you're closeted. We're all we're, it's all Whoa. coming out. This, Except this guy you. is not only a racist, but apparently he's a, he is a homophobe. Jeez, <laughs> um, really oh, man. You need to go back into hiding for ping a few pong, years. Ping oh, pong. I'm not sure. Um, That's the no, Gimp's great say, like, great grandfather. The blowjob scene reminded me, for whatever reason, of like an Otoroski scene, like because it, it was so like off the wall and like crazy, and just like how he shot it, and like Jackson's in the snow getting a blowjob from a naked guy, and he's like laughing while it's happening. I oh, couldn't believe what nuts. I was hearing. Like well, when he was explaining that, there was no indication that that was coming. Yeah. So did that actually happen? That really happened, or was no. he just fucking with? Me? No. Fuck no. Fuck no. I don't think so, but when he walked, when no, no, I'm gay myself, so that's impossible. Um, when I, kid, that makes sense. When he walks into the, (laughs) when he walks into the lodge, he looks at he looks at that general. Uh, He stays on him longer than as well. (laughs) <laughs> like he remembers his son, so I don't know. I don't know. Learned it from his path. Uh, It'd be better without any teeth. <clears throat> oh. Nice and gummy. But 
back to that scene. It oh, is played God. like a horror scene, isn't it? Because it's cutting back and forth to the reaction of the dad, like finding out that his son's done that. And then he's just... He's fucking in the... Fucking with him enough where it's like, did he? Didn't he do it? But I mean, he was like dad, looking at... Yeah, yeah. That scene was fucking crazy, man. He was looking up at the sky and laughing while this... I don't know. And this was also one of the funniest... This was one of the funniest Tarantino movies. Like yeah. when every time that that fucking door, every time the door opened, everyone would scream to sh mm. like shut it until it was nailed shut. People wouldn't stop screaming to shut it. That was this fucking is hilarious. A, uh, this is another one that I read before I watched it because he famously mm. it got leaked and then <laughs> he really said, "I'm not going to do it." So I was like, "Fuck's sake!" So I got a hold of the script and read it because I thought this would never happen. Um. It's weird because in the script, um, Bob is not Mexican. He's French. Um, there's a couple other sequences that aren't in there. There are things that get changed. So it's always interesting to to read what he does and then see it. Because well, he does change certain things. And the, and the fucker is terrible at spelling and grammar. <laughs> terrible. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> uh, but two things I want to pick up on is, like, the editing, like... Josh said he learned a lot from watching his films, reading his screenplays and learning how to write that way. Watching this taught me about editing dialogue scenes because I'm never bored watching this film and a lot of this film is dialogue. Uh, it's tense, it's dialogue driven and the way he edits dialogue, it's never crossing over with one another. Each person gets a piece to say. I remember you, you said that. I remember you said to me as well, like, it didn't just teach you about uh, how to edit uh, um, dialogue. It was also teaching you how to shoot dialogue. Yeah, because yeah. when you go to, like, film set and someone's acting, I think people tend to want to cross lines with each other. Uh, mm -hmm. Where one actor's saying a line, and then another actor bumps in at the end of the other person's lines, but it's not separate, it's overlapped. And that yeah. can be done in the edit, but... When you're trying to edit someone who's already overlapped, it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> and uh, saying to Josh about it, it's like, he shoots it where each person doesn't overlap with dialogue and it makes it easier to edit, but no one's fighting for it and they say the lines in it. It's very responsive. It's just something I picked up on when I watched it and it's quite educational that way. Uh, helps me edit some of Josh's upcoming projects. We'll see where we get with that. Oh, boy. Oh, looking good. And the other thing... There's not enough, uh, not enough uh, racist humor in it for Matt to like, though. <laughs> Jesus. It's all homophobic. Uh, and the other thing... Too many gays for Matt, maybe. I've been reading, like, some of the criticisms <laughs> of Van Tarantino, and I just wanted to grab your thoughts about it, where they say, like... Uh, the sexism against well, the character, where we're supposed to be cheering that the lady being hanged and it's excessive and none of the male stuff is that bad, etc. Why are you guys kind of thoughts on that? Like, I even reject your his, hypothesis. Even in his filmography, like his violence against women, because I always thought he was quite woman empowering. Like, he didn't make them weak, they it kind of almost felt like an equal opportunity kind of deal. Like people could fucking die by one another's hands. Yeah. 
Well, like, uh, to me, like, th that's just ridiculous, especially in this film, because, like, there's a scene at the start where you're going along and you think, like, uh, she's, a uh, Daisy's just, just, like, this brute, and then, like, yeah, that's that part where Kurt Russell just elbows her straight in the fucking face and she starts bleeding, you're like, whoa, shit, like, you feel like, well, this is, like, this is different, like, this guy is, no one's, no one in this film is a good person. Mm. They're all yeah. awful people. Um, there are ones you obviously sympathize more, and you def definitely, the, the longer the film goes, Sam Jackson and Walton Goggins become the protagonists. Yeah. But, um, it, I didn't see, like, the ending as, like, glorifying violence against women. It's like, Daisy was as dangerous and as horrible as the rest of them. She just happened to be a woman. Because... They were saying, like, there's glorifying that, but when Sam Jackson gets shot in the nuts, the audience is supposed to be more, like, oh, like, sympathetic. But uh, I think they That's seem to... That's because he's more of the protagonist but this is the of thing. the story. I feel it? like there's missing the point, because for me, it's like, these are people where it's like, you or fucking me. I'm going to pick me. Like, But also, I'm at gonna... the same time, like, Sam Jackson, like, less than half an hour before that, was like, taunting someone about getting a blowjob from his dead son. So Sam Jackson wasn't, like, a sympathetic, nice guy. Yeah. Uh, like, that's what I like about the film, where people are just doing shit. Like, it's so unexpected to us when it happens, but it's hilarious. And I'm not thinking it's funny mm. because it's happening against a woman. Like, if it's happening to a guy, it's fucking funny as well. It's just that I feel mm. we're kind of not trained, but... Like, seeing that violence against the woman is supposed to be shocking. And it is shocking at the beginning where he does that. But then this is a crazy bitch that's been killing families. Like... She gets punched, like, five or six times before they even make it to the the lodge. I love, uh, I love the scene where she's getting her fucking face broken in by fucking Kurt Russell. And he's, like, vomiting up blood right in her face. And she's just laughing her ass off. So this bitch is nuts. Another thing, you know how you talk about actor resurgences? Anyone in this film pop out where you thought, oh, they've had a resurgence because of this film, or they're bringing... Uh, I mean, she did a little bit. Best. She yeah. did a little bit. She was in, um, was she in, what was the one with Poe Dameron, ex-Machina director... Uh, Annihilation. She was in Annihilation. Oh, Annihilation. Yeah, she was in Annihilation. Was that before or after Annihilation? This is before. Yeah, so I, I would classify it as a resurgence. Um, who else was in this that I would... Uh, not so much I mean, in this really, one. like, going back to Death Proof, like, he gave Kurt Russell a bit of a resurgence, because at that point, the, the biggest movie Kurt Russell done in years was fucking uh, Sky High. Yeah, Poseidon or whatever the hell it was. And now he's in, like, some of Josh's favorite films. It's always in my favorite films. Yeah, the Wild Speed films. <laughs> Wild Speed, fantastic time. Uh, One other thing, how did, how did they get her up onto that rope? They were both... Okay, two things. This was a trend oh, now. It wasn't just a one-off getting shot in the balls. That's happened three times in his movies now. <laughs> getting shot in the balls is a, now a Tarantino thing. And then they were they were oh. fucked. They they couldn't do anything. They could barely walk. I don't know how they got her over to the to get her hanging. Maybe that they had the gun point. to her, 
had the gun to her head and said, do this. I guess, but she was not, she's she pretty healthy stuff. compared to them. She probably could, whatever. Yeah, it was a small nitpick, but. Yeah, she would have got shot. <laughs> You're not so healthy yeah. if you get shot in the fucking face. Uh, yeah, but what, what's the alternative? Get hanged? <laughs> you might as well risk getting shot to avoid getting hanged. Not by these point. fucking guns. I don't know. Uh, but clearly the best fucking know. nut shot was in the Glorious Bastards. That one's the fucking best one. Because he has the one liner before it as well. It's like, say goodbye to your Nazi boss. boss. <laughs> that one cracks right, No, he well. says, say Alvitazane. Say Alvitazane to your Nazi balls. Like, the subtitles are goodbye to him, but he says it in German, doesn't he? Or no, he says it in, no, he says it in English. He Does says he? it in English. Because I always think he says yeah, it in he German. Yeah, he turns subtitles. to him and says, no, because like, by that point their cover's blown so he's like fuck it and he's like say good say alvitazane to your nazi balls he says it in english i'm telling you <laughs> guaranteed i was like what dollar bet I win. Uh, but shall we goodbye get... <laughs> shall we get let's say to... alvitazane to the show <laughs> well we're gonna go into a final topic where you're just gonna rank your order of tarantino films and that'll close out the show so josh we'll start with you no, 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 you, someone else go, let me think. Yeah, I need to figure this out. Go on, Matt. We know if we <laughs> All right, I'll go first, I'll go first. Uh, Death Proof, number nine. Uh, Kill I thought you Bill. Death Proof, number one. Death Proof, number one, yeah. Uh, Death Proof, number nine. Kill Bill, volume one, number eight. Kill Bill, volume two, is seven. Then I got Jackie Brown at number six. Django Unchained at number five. And then top four, Hateful Eight. Reservoir Dogs number three. Inglorious Bastards number two. And Pulp Fiction number one. Uh yeah. That took me a while to line up. I don't know. I don't know. When it gets to that middle group from Reservoir Dogs down to Jackie Brown. I was like, I couldn't get my order in. I think Reservoir Dogs deserves to be in the top three because going back and watching it last week, it is it, all the like little Tarantinoisms are really entertaining to watch in that one. So many memorable scenes in that one. So it made the top three just ahead of Hateful Eight. There you go. There it is. Do you have a list, Josh, or do you want me to go ahead? Uh, I'll go through my list. Um, okay. His segment in four rooms is lost. Uh, Death Proof after that. Um, Kill Bill Volume 1. Then Kill Bill Volume 2. Um, then Django Unchained. Uh, Reservoir Dogs. Mm, Jackie... Brown or Hateful Eight, I'd say I'd say that's a tie for third. Inglorious Bosses two, and Pulp Fiction number one. Fuck, we are close. We had eight of the nine the same there. Okay. I'm gonna be the fucking outlier. Uh, last place is fucking Death Proof. Then it's Jackie Brown. Then it's probably Killville Volume Two. Once upon a time. Reservoir Dogs. Jesus uh, Christ. Django Unchained. Kill Bill. And then the top three are quite interchangeable for me. 
uh, I will watch Inglorious Bastards and Hateful Eight later in the week. Uh, Pulp Fiction still holds up quite well for me and it's very entertaining. But I want to see those two again just to decide what order they'll go in. But they're quite interchangeable for me. I'm easily entertained by all three. Would you guys... Where would you guys put True Romance if you were going to include True okay. Romance? Like if True Romance was... That he, true, that he does say he loves. That if he's True like, Romance... Yeah, I, I, if it was a Tarantino movie, it'd be number four. That fucking movie is awesome. Like, that... Oh my god, that movie's so good. Uh, Christian Slater, like, be, is the only maybe, part of it that I... You know, go ahead. Oh, you don't like Christian Slater in that? No, no, I think it's probably the best thing he's in. But I just, I still can't get around that's Christian Slater. Or Slater, but go ahead. <laughs> I'd put in the same area as Jackie Brown and Hateful Eight in that spot vying for third, equal third, fourth. Yeah. yeah. Such a good movie, I love eh? it. I've got I do want to watch the, the, the Tarantino cut of it. There's apparently a Tarantino cut where he re-edits it. And puts it in the order that it's meant to, as it was written. Because in the film that we get, it's like chronological. But in his version of the script, it's like everything else he does, where it's kind of all jumbled up. I mean, you want to talk about like you want to talk about the the violence against women aspect of um, uh, Hateful Eight, like that scene where um, what's her name? She's getting beat up by Tony Soprano in the. She is getting absolutely thrown around in that scene. It's so. I mean, even that at that time that was probably rare. A phenomenal performance by Gary Oldman, who's virtually unrecognizable. Yeah, yeah, I know. That was coming off the heels of Dracula too. He was on fire at that time. Yep. Um, So great scene, the Sicilian scene with Christopher Walken and. Dennis Hopper, which is, I know T- Quinton said that's his best scene until he wrote the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards. The eggplant scene. So. The uh. The Sicilian. The Sicilians scene. and the the Moors. Yeah. I just thought you would really like that scene. Don't talk to yourself like that, Considering Josh. Considering this. The racial, the racial undertones. <laughs> Bloody hell. With that, then, we'll start to close out the show. Uh, I think we've covered everything apart from Once Upon a Time, which we will cover when Josh and Matt both see it later on in the month, probably towards the well, back you end. you ranked it, so I know how you feel about it now. Yeah. You put it in your list. Exactly, but you two, we could, we could get a conversation out of that. I'll be... This is what I'm intrigued about because my list varies so differently to yours that you might appreciate it a lot more than me and I'll be MJ just curious to hear to why. Different. I know, right? How awkward of me. What do you say we <laughs> get together again get and it. do a review for it? We, we, we shouldn't say we will. Hopefully not as long. Oh, no. No, this was insane. It's, what? We'll it definitely good. keep it shorter. Uh, should be good. Oh, thank God. And so optimistic. My phone is overheated like several times. Cuck it, I got it. And I'm about... It's about to die now.